This week on the pod, we answer some user questions aimed at Rob, as per usual, discuss the impeachment or lack thereof and its implications, you finally get to see us spar about cancel culture and conservative discrimination, and we wrap up our discussion with Editor-in-Chief Clay Cogman about the decriminalization of drugs. You're listening to the fastest-growing moderate political podcast in the nation. This is Down the Middle, a political podcast. All right, guys. Episode 30, Justin. Wow. We we made we're another 10 years older or whatever. We're officially adults. Yeah. So it's been some week. Uh how are you? I'm doing good. You know, there's a lot of a lot of craziness aimed at everyone. I've just been ducking and jiving, as they say. Me too. Well, I die I jive first and then I duck. Okay. Well, that's fine. It makes sense for both of us. You know, we do the same things but in opposite order. Exactly. Very, very true. Okay, so before we get started here, uh, the speed of the news of the day uh, sometimes doesn't give us enough time to do a complete dissertation on that news. You know, that's sort of the nature of having a political podcast. And today is one of those days because, as you may have heard, Rush Limbaugh died of lung cancer at the age of 70. And uh, we didn't think it would be right to move forward with this episode without saying something about it. Now, Rush was an extremely controversial figure who said a lot of very controversial things. Uh, But as we have talked about before on the show, there are some people who have such an influential presence in our culture that when they die, we don't remember them for the controversies or the negative attention they received, at least not at first. What we do note is the positive elements of the legacy that they left behind. So Rush is widely considered the godfather of political talk radio, love him or hate him. And he really did pave the way for Mm -hmm. independent style media, which I do believe to be a net positive for society because it's what Justin and I are doing right now. That's right. Um, So I'm sure a lot of you guys who are around our age um, grew up listening to Rush as your dad dropped you off at school. I wasn't one of those people. Uh, My dad wasn't a Rush fan, but I think I could say that there's a good chance that we wouldn't even be doing a political podcast, Justin, if it weren't for the influence of Rush Limbaugh. Uh, He made this kind of thing cool, and uh, he had a lot of influence on left-wing independent media Mm -hmm. as well. So uh, we will come back to this topic at a later date and do a deeper dive into the good, the bad, and the ugly of Rush Limbaugh and his legacy. Uh, But until then... R.I.P. Rush. R.I.P. Rush. Well said. Well said, Rob. So let's go right into it. Let's not waste any time. We got some Honest Apes. When he growed up this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham. Abraham. Okay, so uh, some of you have been asking uh, what happened to the interviews, you know. So in the beginning of the pod, uh, we used to try to give you guys a new interview every week. We were bright-eyed. We were bushy-tailed. And now we are old, bitter, and cynical. I miss, I miss my bushy tail, man. <laughs> I know, right? The, the truth is that we never imagined how much there would be to talk about every single week in the world of politics. Our episodes fall in the two-hour mark every week, which yeah. makes them, honestly, some of the longest political podcast episodes on the scene today. We appreciate uh, that, you know— Taking up two hours of your time every week is a lot to ask, and we are very thankful that people Mm -hmm. seem to be willing to give us their time. Adding another hour-long interview onto that would be a lot to ask you guys every single week. On top of that, 
We like to stay relatively high on the political podcast charts, and we realized early on when we would release two podcasts in one week, even if one was our main episode and the other is an interview, because the the interview would typically get less downloads than our main episode, it brings our overall ratings on on the podcast charts down. And that is important to us outside of our own egos, of course, because if we remain high on the charts, we get our podcast out to more people, we continue to grow, and we get to continue promoting incremental moderate change. So anything we can do to keep our numbers up is a good thing for everyone. Now, with that said, however, Justin and I have some life stuff coming up in the next several months where we are not going to probably be able to give you guys an episode every single week over a short period of time. Mm -hmm. So we are indeed recording more interviews and banking them so that we could push those out on weeks where we won't be able to give you a fresh new episode. We are also thinking about the idea of having guest hosts for some of those weeks. You could see our editor-in-chief, Clay Cogman, hosting a Down the Middle episode, maybe with his own special guests. Or any Cogman, really. We just or any a, Cogman. Throw yeah. a Cogman up there. We've and had any all, of the Cogmans, right, right. <laughs> it, it could be a Cogman dog, for all we know. I mean, it could be, they're, <laughs> they're all prolific, right. Um, we are thinking about interviews. We have more lined up, and they will eventually all come out in due time. So that answers that question. Yeah, once again, calm down. Yeah, calm down. So uh, next, we want to periodically remind you guys that we still have some really awesome products for sale. Uh, we haven't, we, you know, we, we feel like if we don't remind you every week, we forget about them. So, J- Justin, just remind them about how cool they are. We got great stuff. I use this stuff myself, and I'm not just saying that. I do. I have, I have the mugs. All, the baby all, onesies. You use those? I, I love the baby onesies. You like to wear them? I yeah, I wear them on my finger. <laughs> uh, but no, the travel mugs are great. The at-home mugs are great. The t-shirts, I got a dozen of them. I got some sweatshirts. Yeah. They're fantastic. They're great material. You'll love wearing them. And they have... Yeah the message of moderation on them and who doesn't want to promote that openly. Exactly. And why not drink your coffee out of a mug that your friends are going to be jealous about? Yeah, ask you about. They're going to be like, what is that? What is down now, the middle? Now, granted, it is the, it, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but when the pandemic ends, you're going to have friends over again. You know, maybe you're having waffles. Maybe you're making them breakfast and you have that mug in front of you. And it's like, where did you get that? Because yeah, that's nice an incredible mug. Me- it's a nice yeah. looking mug. And it says incremental, moderate change on it. So mm-hmm. that's a, people are going to be asked questions about that. It's a conversation starter. It is a conversation piece. It is art. Yeah, exactly. So start a conversation today. Get some of our products. Endorse our capitalist endeavors. Yes, the link is in all the bios in all our socials. And that is all we have for you for Honest Apes. Okay, moving on. Sometimes in life, one needs the equivalent of a warm hug out of their podcast segment. Now, this segment is the one segment in the world that provides this to our audience. Let it embrace you and address all of your questions, concerns, and or grievances. This is We Care A Lot. Yes, both of these questions, Rob, as as we heard in the as, intro, as per are our usual for you. arrangement. Mm-hmm. That's just how it goes. So this first one is indeed from a friend of the pod, and they had this question: Marjorie Taylor Greene was removed from her committees despite having been elected by her district to represent the people. The Republican Party is in a very public crisis. The Democratic Party's crisis is less noticeable, but no less intense. Both parties are being pushed by inflammatory personalities with fringe political ideologies. 
Republicans didn't scorch AOC for being a fearmonger or Bernie for being a fiscal hypocrite, why are we celebrating a Democratic-led House for removing an elected official from committees? Wow. Okay, interesting. question. Yeah. And a lot to unpack there, too, so yes. bear with me here, okay? So, you know, this particular question, uh, concern is filled with both false narratives and false equivalents, so I'd love to be the one who addresses it. Um, and then Justin can chime in when when he thinks I got something right or I got something wrong or he can wait to you know wait for my whole thing to be done here. All right. right. So so let's start at the top. Okay, a quote: Marjorie Taylor Greene was removed from her committees despite having been elected by her district to represent the people. End quote. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, uh, but she also literally endorsed the idea of hanging her colleague Nancy Pelosi. That is something she actually endorsed, okay? And while many of her constituents might agree with that endorsement, uh, some of them might even want her to act on it, uh, elected officials, uh, even though they do speak for their constituency, are not mandated to follow all of the various crazy impulses of that constituency. Imagine if they were. Exactly. Uh, you know, if they were, I'd, I'd be a hell of a lot richer. That's for, yeah, that's for sure. sure. <laughs> so Marjorie Taylor Greene openly said that she thought both the Parkland school shooting and the Newtown school shooting were false flags designed to take away your Second Amendment rights. Now, she has a right to believe that if she wants, and a majority of her constituents may even agree with her on those things, although I find that odd. Mm-hmm. But uh, elected officials swear an oath to the Constitution and not on parroting the absurdities of their constituents just doesn't work like that in other words the argument that just because an elected official was elected by the people in a particular district and those people made that decision knowing full well what type of person that official was does not preclude that official from being punished accordingly if they are putting the country writ large or their fellow members of Congress at risk. The conspiracies that MTG endorsed in her personal life as a private citizen are dangerous in a myriad of ways uh, and destroy the body politic. So it is absolutely within the right of the United States Congress to hold her accountable for the things she has said, despite the fact that many of her constituents might even agree with her. Now, next, the listener says, quote, uh, Republicans didn't scorch AOC for being a fearmonger, end quote. Now, I had to chuckle just a bit at this contention because actually that's exactly what they do <laughs> with AOC and they do it constantly. I mean, the Republicans have propped AOC up on the pedestal uh, from the beginning, uh, you know, with the help of the media, of course, and have made her the sole thought leader of the Democratic Party for the sole purpose of being able to scorch her repeatedly for being a fearmonger. Mm-hmm. You know, b- but if you're using the term scorch to imply that they haven't removed her from committee assignments uh, when they could have, I guess you could say. Uh, you know, we have to define fear-mongering a little bit here first. So if you go back to episode 13, when we were just babies of this podcast, yeah. we had an episode called The Red and Blue Switcheroo, one of my favorite titles ever. And I did an, an entire rant about political fear-mongering mm-hmm. and said specifically that fear-mongering is a healthy everyday part of politics that has been going on for hundreds of years anywhere in the world where democratic elections are taking place an election or uh, rather an element of politics is literally scaring your base your constituents into thinking that if they vote for your opponent their lives are going to get worse for a myriad of reasons Mm -hmm. financial cultural safety related or all of the above that kind of rhetoric has been commonplace in virtually every election that has occurred on the local state and federal level since the dawn of our republic. So it's nothing new, okay? In that same rant from episode 13, I talk about how the Republican fear-mongering during the current election cycle, which was the 2020 election, of course, was by far and away the most extreme I'd ever seen it. 
And I cited so-called education experts that were going on primetime Fox News and making claims that school districts in blue states were using remote distance learning as an excuse to expose our children to online pornography and teach them how to sex each other. You remember this, Justin? I do recall this. Yeah. (laughs) So that clip was then retweeted by several GOP congresspeople. And I never called for their removal from office or from committees because there is a distinction between that kind of sort of a hyperbolic pre-election fear-mongering and endorsing the idea that the Speaker of the House should be murdered Mm -hmm. or chasing grieving Parkland kids around and claiming that they were never involved in a school shooting and then calling them liars. I mean, there is likewise... A huge distinction between the other topic this listener brought up, which is the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene engaged in this kind of stuff and what Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, he, I think he said being a, quote, fiscal hypocrite. Uh, that's a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> right. So so anyone who listens to this show knows that I am no way, no, in no way, shape or form a fan of Bernie Sanders. But first off, I do not agree, actually, that Bernie is a fiscal hypocrite. I think he's actually one of the most genuine members of the Senate and probably in all of government. He just happens to be genuinely wrong about <laughs> nearly everything, right? Yeah. But I, I don't in any way think he's faking it, though. I, I think he truly believes in the economic philosophy that he's been endorsing for essentially the last 268 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the guy took his his, his honeymoon in, in the USSR. <laughs> yeah, look at his so, Right. Exactly. And frankly, uh, we see this this uh, this is sort of a little tangent, but it's very quick. Uh, you know, we see this ridiculous idea from the right pop up a lot. They say something like, well, you know, Bernie is rich and therefore he couldn't possibly be a champion for the working class. Right. And maybe I propel this a little like whenever I talk about Bernie, I mention his three houses, mm-hmm. you know, right? and that's sort of a joke. But like. If that line of thought held any water, there would be no such thing as the Democratic Party, because the Democrats in Congress have always been wealthy in relation to the average citizen. But they've also always been champions of the poor and the working class for like 100 years. Right. So I've never understood the idea that if politicians, if a politician isn't isn't choosing to live on the street, we need to take them less seriously when they rail against poverty or homelessness like You know, and and they do this also, they love to do this with uh, people like Bill Gates or Leonardo DiCaprio, who have have put a lot of money and effort into fighting climate change, only to then be accused of having a large carbon footprint from Mm -hmm. the right. So you get idiots like Laura Ingram on Fox, who will make an absurd statement like, well, if Bill Gates really cared about the environment, why is he flying around everywhere? Why doesn't he walk? It just happened to Matt Damon, I think, today. He, He flew on a private jet to the Thor. Uh, the Thor set and everyone's freaking out. They do it all the time. These dumb right-wing gotchas make it nearly impossible for me to ever take these people seriously again. Like, and Bill Gates actually had a, a, he was on 60 minutes last Sunday talking about his climate. He's putting all of his money and effort into climate change. Right. And Anderson Cooper was interviewing him actually said to him, you're going to get a lot of pushback for the fact that you have a big, carbon footprint and he was like actually i think i have the the large the single largest carbon footprint in the entire world because i fly by private jet all over the world he totally admitted it he's like but that's why i'm trying to do something about it like i can't walk to where i'm going i have to have that it's not me being a hypocrite it's me using what's available to me right now and 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 investing in, in the problem so that i can help it later right so i've never liked that argument but beyond all that 
There is a serious false equivalence here, again, between the garbage conspiracies that MTG has endorsed and the garbage economic theories that Bernie Sanders has endorsed, okay? Mm -hmm. We want our elected officials to disagree over economic policy. We want people like Bernie Sanders to endorse far-left economic policy so that we can push back with facts about economics. We want people like Bernie to constantly bring up how great the, the, the economies in Europe are compared to the U.S. so that we can Remind Bernie and thus U.S. citizens that this logic is extraordinarily faulty and you haven't done enough research, Bernie, right? But we have plenty of economically extreme positions on the right as well. I mean, Ted Cruz has been repeat. He said repeatedly that he wants to abolish the IRS and have us all pay some kind of small consumption tax. I don't see anything less radical about this idea than any of Bernie Sanders ideas. They're both crazy. They're both yeah. crazy nuts. Right. But yeah. but in terms of government, that is the kind of crazy we should welcome. We should actually welcome that crazy. That sparks debate. But we should not the welcome diversity of thought. Right. Right. We should, but but there's a distinction and we should not welcome the brand of crazy that is attached to Marjorie Taylor Greene. It is unbecoming of the United States Congress to have members in its ranks that have endorsed and projected ideas that are both imminently dangerous to the country and uh, bigoted, racist or anti-Semitic. And no, there is absolutely no comparing those things to some of the misguided economic notions of other members of Congress uh, or the fact that AOC is perhaps more dramatic than other members of Congress. Like This is silly, friend of the pod, sorry to say. So I do indeed think the Democrats did the right thing for once in removing Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments. I don't care if it, quote, backfires, because I think all members of government need to be held more accountable. And I most certainly don't care if her constituents in rural Georgia are upset about this. Next time, choose someone who doesn't put her own colleagues in danger. And that's my thoughts on that. Justin? Okay, so I briefly mentioned this last week when we were discussing MTG, but I do believe the question stands. And so, friend of the pod, forget about AOC or Bernie. I don't know why they were brought up, honestly. What about Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar? There are anti-Semitic tweets and comments that have been spoken by both of these women. What, and what about the fact they're parading around information that isn't factual? The history of Israel that they spout constantly is also garbage and wrong and therefore dangerous, not to mention that advocating for a one-state solution is advocating for violence and aggression. So, additionally... We talk about MTG, we talk about associations with Trump and how dangerous that is. Mm -hmm. But what about Rashida Tlaib's association with a man named Maher Abdel Kader, an activist who's raised money and organized for Tlaib? Uh, he's known for posting videos with blatantly anti-Semitic statements. You know, what about both women's support for BDS? Right. Israel banned both women. What's the difference with Congress reacting in a similar fashion? And then there's MIFTA, which is a group both of them are involved with. Uh, this organization, their website featured praise for Palestinian suicide bombers an anti-Semitic treatise that they lifted straight from an American neo-Nazi website, and an article which claimed that the Jews use the blood of Christians during Passover, which I have never seen that at a Seder. You? No, no. <laughs> uh, when questioned about this, Mifta blamed the publication of that last one on a junior staffer. Their leader, Dr. Hanan Ashram, is an executive committee member of the PLO, an organization with known ties to sub-militias, most of whom advocate violence. So this is a direct link between Talib and Omar and violence. So shouldn't they be held accountable in the same way? It's ironic, though, what Rashida Tlaib has said recently about MTG. And she said, every single day that goes by without outright condemnation from every single one of her Republican colleagues, without consequences for her extremist views, is an outright endorsement of white supremacy. But in November of 2020, Tlaib tweeted the following regarding Biden's pick of Anthony Blinken for state. 
quote, so long as he doesn't suppress my First Amendment right to speak out against Netanyahu's racist and inhumane policies, the Palestinian people deserve equality and justice, and went on to say Secretary Pompeo has moved to suppress BDS, a peaceful protest movement protected by the First Amendment. I hope that Mr. Blinken and President-elect Biden's administration will change course from Trump's State Department and not target or suppress support of Palestinian human rights. So Talib's views are also extremist, and she's also spreading falsities. Mm-hmm. So there's, there is a line that I don't know that there's a massive amount of difference. Okay. Both, have been li- both have been linked to violent entities. Right. Both are spreading lies. Both have extremist views, and both are dangerous, in my opinion. To punish one and not the other seems inconsistent to me. And that's where I, I was expecting front of the pod to go, and I don't know why they didn't go there. Right. Okay. And I, it's funny, uh, speaking of expectations, I was expecting you to go there. <laughs> um, you know, when, when we sort of hash out these arguments on our own before we get on, on the pod, it's always, I think both of us think, well, what is the, what is the other side going to say? And, sure. and as you guys know, this I, is an uh, obvious one. Right, as I've said a million times, I listen to a ton of right-wing media and the, the, the big talking point uh, after this MTG, uh, you know, uh, getting kicked off her committees by the Democrats, the big talking point from most of the right-wing commentators were, you know, specifically in regard to Ilhan Omar and the fact that she's a supporter of BDS. Um, now, BDS, of course, is boycott, divest, and sanctions of Israel. It is a blatantly anti-Semitic policy. There is no doubt about it. I have absolutely said multiple times on this podcast that I think those people, that, that wing of the party, which is basically just Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, are, are yeah. viciously anti-Semitic. They yeah. say terrible things about Israel. They, they support policies that are bad for Israel and thus bad for America. But let me let me let me break it down for one second here. Remember uh, when we had Paul Angelo on the show? Yeah. Um, and he, was, he was a self-avowed socialist and mm-hmm. a huge Bernie Sanders fan. And yes. we got into like a very brief conversation about 9-11. And mm-hmm. he was saying, you know, obviously, he condemns 9-11. But his opinion is that 9-11 was the result of decades of bad American policy in the Middle East that mm-hmm. festered for long enough and it was the spark that led to the the uh, to al-Qaeda and the hatred of the United States and eventually uh, led to Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda planning 9-11, right? Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, eh, I don't really agree with that. You know who does agree with that, though, Justin? Hmm. Conservative Republican Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Rand Paul is a isolationist. He yeah. is a, a libertarian leaning. He believes that every problem in the world is because of our intervention. He wants to end all of the wars that we've been he's involved not the in. Only one. Right. Mm-hmm. He's not the only one. He has had huge conflict with John McCain's of the party. The point is that that is a policy disagreement. Mm-hmm. And BDS and even even uh, policies like that that I do believe are blatantly anti-Semitic are mm-hmm. policy disagreements. Yeah, I, agree. I want uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar in Congress supporting BDS so that we can destroy their arguments with mm-hmm. reason and logic and uh, you know really good arguments from the other side, and which happens all the time. Yeah. So there, uh, there is a huge distinction here between supporting policy that we don't like which which happens on both sides of the aisle there are people who support crazy policies on both sides of the aisle and blatantly making up or believing in conspiracies that 
have no merit that are dangerous. Now, I know you can say, well, BDS is sort of based on conspiracies about I mean, I'm, Israel I'm not, as well. I, I hear that, but I'm not. It's why it's why BDS was merely a mention in in what in my point because I agree with you. I think right. that it's a policy conversation. It's right. about sanctions, mm-hmm. um, and you know that's anti-Semitic, but it's also something to bring up. Sanctions are they're aggressive, but it's right. not military aggression. It's as peaceful as you can get without physically going to war right um what i was talking about are her links to dangerous people Mm -hmm. and her spreading of the lie of the origin of israel those to me are her two biggest most dangerous things and i think that those are the distinctions to draw in the the straight line between her and mtg it's not about bds to me it's about she is connected to dangerous people also but she's also spreading lies okay but has she actually endorsed the murder of any of her colleagues number one violence is violence i mean Uh, of of course colleagues other you know i mean it's that's a thin line but you're talking about i'm saying that mtg literally it literally endorsed the idea of hanging nancy pelosi they're they're both horrific but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say that hanging the idea of hanging nancy pelosi and hanging uh netanyahu for example are yeah but she hasn't suggested that she has never suggested that. but she's been involved in people that endorse violence that are that is akin to that so my point is, is that there's a straight line for me. It doesn't matter if it's her colleague or not. It's just a straight line. There has been a long history of Democratic uh, politicians uh, hobnobbing, not endorsing, but hobnobbing with with the likes sure. of Louis Farrakhan. Yeah. Are we going to get rid of all of those people because he's a bad guy? I mean, you know, there there is something to be said for every... We have to make a distinction of what is inside of everyday politics and what is mm-hmm. outside. I agree MTG with you. said that 9-11 didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, that is a little more extreme than, uh, you know, maybe taking money from a person who's unsavory or. Sure, uh, but it's not but it's not any more extreme than spreading a lie about the origin of a country in order to advance a narrative that is dangerous to both that country and us. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe maybe I'll give you that one. And I have also been extremely consistent on how the Democrats should expel these two women in particular yeah, from their yeah. caucus as soon as possible you know i, I think they're idiots and yeah it's a terror yeah, you know it's it it's terrible look i, I agree about mtg mm. you agree uh, you know to, yeah. to some extent about these people yeah you know maybe that's the answer i don't right. know maybe it's either that's the answer or none of it's the answer i guess i guess i guess what you're saying is that the friend of the pod who asked this question was drawing a false equivalence with the wrong people yeah. um it, he was yeah, using yeah. bernie sanders and aoc who might be idiots, but are not dangerous. And Correct. and what you're saying is that he should have used Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who believe in ideology that is inherently more dangerous. Yeah, that right. was my point. Yeah, exactly right. Mm-hmm. I'd still like to look into it a little bit more and see, I want to get a list of actual lies and conspiracies that both those women have endorsed. Because I provide I, this for you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, let's come back to this. This is something yeah. that I think is an interesting um, it, conversation. It will be ongoing as well. As, as we examine this administration's policy on Israel, yep. these two will be outspoken. Definitely. You can be sure of it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Next, uh, we got one that was uh, one question here that was kind of a dig at me, wasn't it, Justin? It, it was. It was from uh, who I thought was a friend. I mean, yeesh. yeah, well, I'm up for it. I got reasonably thick skin. So let's do it. Read it to me. Our, our old dear friend, liberal tear drinker. Mm, he's back. Uh, he says, or she says, I'm not yeah, sure. I don't know. Quote, Rob always says that he doesn't demonize money, but I seem to remember having a bunch of drinks with him in L.A. 
it, it, we know it's true because it's never one drink. It's a bunch right. of drinks. It's always a bunch of drinks, yes. <laughs> it's a bunch. I, I Having a bunch of drinks with him in L.A. many years ago, and he tried to convince me that it's better when, quote, true artists don't make money for the art or some BS like that. We argued about it for hours. When did his opinion on this change? Interesting. Okay. So uh, I honestly, don't know who this is. Now. I rack my brain. I have no idea who this is. I'm, a, I'm guessing it's maybe someone I went to school with, but it, you know, we went to school with rather yeah. at Berkeley College of Music when we were mm-hmm. musicians. But uh, I've had many, uh, many a drinks with a lot of people in LA. So I have no idea. I will say, however, that the short answer to this question is that my position kind of sort of hasn't changed on this. Yeah. And I do not think that is indicative of me demonizing money, but but rather just how I feel about the intersection of money and art specifically. So can I explain? Please. Uh, and I know I know Justin will, will, will have plenty to add here on this one. So feel free to jump in. So okay. so. First, we have to make a distinction. This episode, there's been a lot of distinctions made on this episode. We have to make a distinction between pop or pop rock music and artsy music. They're different things, right? Okay. And, and, I mean, just the intention with which you make it, I think, is, 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 is the thing. I'm gonna. I was just gonna get to that because yeah. they're, they're different things. And I think both Justin and myself are big fans of of pop music, and we have friends. We have we have actual friends who make really good money making and playing pop music and we are nothing but ecstatic about the fact that they are able to do this Uh, i I don't ever demonize money when it comes to that kind of thing i want my friends to be as successful as possible right when when i find out a friend has has had a good year whether it's doing music or whether it's at their corporate job i'm happy for them right yeah but the the goal of pop music is indeed to be profitable right and i mean you you don't have people around the world like honing their skill in pop songwriting because their goal is to live in a van for the rest i was gonna say i hope i hope i can afford a condo like (laughs) no one in pop music says no no one says that right so people who work in that field be it musicians or producers or whoever have a goal to make money and indeed justin and i have been in bands where the goal Mm -hmm. was to write songs and that you know that would eventually make us money right yeah so there is there's nothing wrong with this especially if you make no apologies about the fact that that your goal is to make money but there is a distinction between that kind of music and artsy music and again i think i speak for both justin and myself when i say that we are both really big fans of artsier music as well you know like mm-hmm. independent bands singer songwriters who are doing groundbreaking or unique things in a more like underground sort of setting yeah. you know the artists that play 200 seat clubs and travel in a van that they drive themselves rather than a bus yeah, create to create people that don't necessarily are aimed at money but they're aimed at making crafting art and crafting a message something have something to say right. they aren't thinking about how much money am i going to make from this they're thinking about here's the my art. vision and and this is the art that i have to present exactly you know with, with people who make that kind of music the the artsy or sort of more esoteric kind of stuff it is indeed better in my opinion, when they're not making money, because money and art is like oil and water. In my opinion, they just they just do not mix. You know, it's funny. You'll hear boomers like uh, our parents age. They they talk a lot about how much music sucks nowadays, you know, compared Mm -hmm. to in their day. You know, they'll always be like, oh, music's terrible back in my day. Because, granted, they did come from a pretty awesome era of music. Right. Yeah. uh, But I will always push back on it. I'll always be like, actually, it really doesn't. There, There is just as much talent and just as much groundbreaking amazing stuff going on in music as there mm-hmm. ever was you just have to know where to find it yeah it's harder to find yeah you're you're not yeah. gonna find it anymore on the radio mm-hmm. or on television you're, you're gonna find it by being in the scene or yeah. by by word of mouth and mm-hmm. the stuff that typically wows us and when i say us i mean like justin and i think i can speak for both of us nowadays yeah. um it, the, the stuff that wows us is probably gonna be 
by the artists that are slugging it out on the road, like for sure. eating bologna on hand, which is that's mm-hmm. a musician joke. You know, the the idea is that the, the you're so broke you don't even have the bread to make sandwiches, so you're yeah. eating bologna Just on bologna. hand sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, the begging for the audience for gas money after the gig mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Um, because the reality is that that kind of lifestyle inspires art, right? You know, yeah. it, 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 it just does. It. And, and, mm-hmm. and frankly, it's always been that way. Like if you look at the at the blues guys of the Mississippi Delta era, like the Robert Johnson and Sunhouse mm-hmm. and you know, some of these guys that paved the way for rock and pop music of today, those guys in many cases were full on hobos. Like they were yeah. homeless. They lived yeah. on the street. They they hitchhiked from town to town and played their music. And that experience is what made them so prolific and groundbreaking. It's like what's presented in in that movie Whiplash, right? It's right. that uncomfortable situations breed excellence. Uncomfortable mm-hmm. situations breed art. They breed. Right. We're not, and not to go off on a tangent here, but right. I find this this fascinating. Mm-hmm. We're, we 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 are comfortable. We like being comfortable as humans, right? And we don't like growth because growth is uncomfortable. But exactly. when we're placed in a situation where we are forced to grow, we almost always rise to that challenge because we're capable of it. We're just we can be lazy. And so, if someone who is capable of presenting great art is placed in a in a situation like that. It's going to bring greatness out of them. I of course, yeah, and you know, it's been like like I said, it's been like that for a long time. I read a biography of Mozart a few years ago that really stuck with me because the composers of that day in Europe, uh, even though they were profoundly brilliant, were mm-hmm. very poor. They were they yeah. they lived very poor, and they were treated essentially like servants by the mm-hmm. monarchs. I mean, yeah. they worked at the pleasure of the monarchs. Dance, they were tr- dance. they were they were treated as, as well as the guy who brought their food, right? And they were very much looked down on as sort of weird artsy people by the Mm -hmm. by the commerce people in society and so this is something that is hundreds if not thousands of years old okay in society there are artist people and there are commerce people and artist people have always been expected to be okay with a more sort of bohemian lifestyle if you will you know because the idea has always been that the part of their brain that enables them to create art sort of overtakes the part of the brain that takes care uh, of the money stuff and is Mm -hmm. fiscally responsible, right? And and Justin and I I have both known a lot of people like this over the years. Like, Mm -hmm. you you know, usually the rule is the more brilliant, the less likely they are to follow the same rules of the road that the rest of us do. Like, back in my Hollywood days when I was a musician, like, I knew some some of the best musicians in the world that I hung out with. And some of these guys didn't have a credit card or couldn't drive a car or didn't know how to make a reservation. Yeah, yeah, like, mm-hmm. right, it, like, like the point is that sometimes people like that can operate on, they, they cannot operate on the same plane as the rest yeah. of us. And All therefore they know less concerned how to do this. Right. And, and, yeah. and a lot of them are concerned about their financial well being. I remember this, this one guy I won't mention his name, but he was one of the most br- brilliant guitar players in the world. And mm-hmm. he had, he never cashed his checks. Right. Like he would get checks for gigs and they just sit around until the company would have to call him and be like, Hey, we, we have an outstanding check. Just didn't care about money. It just yeah. wasn't part of his thing. Right yeah, now yeah. you may be thinking, well, you know, what about all the great artists of the sixties who were groundbreaking artists and made money, you know, Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin and the who, mm-hmm. and the list goes on and on and on. I mean, first I would argue that most of them were better before they started making money. Like their great albums were when they didn't have money. But second, I think it was it was a much different time period. I mean, success was was just looked upon differently. Money was mm-hmm. looked upon different. It's just different, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the main point I would make is that money has a negative impact on art because true art is about passion. And once 
one starts making money, it tends to change what they're passionate about because you get passionate about making money. <laughs> and also just, you know, decisions are run differently mm-hmm. in your life. Like you may be writing a song and where you may have made a decision based on the, the, the song on one hand. Now you're making a decision based on what is my audience going to want? Right. Or, or someone else is making that decision for you. So it's right. all, there are all kinds of things that could happen in there that could ruin, you know, for, for lack of a better word, the art. Yes. And of course, there are exceptions. And of course, we're not we're not lumping in any people who engage in pop music, which, again, yeah. the, the inherent right. part of pop music, the uh, you know, is to make money. Right. Mm-hmm. But I want to give one analogy. OK, before we, we get off the subject, this is, I could talk about this, this stuff all the time. Same. But the, the, there's a great documentary called uh, Dogtown and Z-Boys that came out mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Right. It had uh, Sean Penn was narrating it. Yeah. Uh, it was turned into a movie. Uh, I, actually, I think it was a pretty decent movie starring mm-hmm. uh, Emil Hirsch and the great Heath Ledger. It was called Lord, Lords of Dogtown. Remember this movie? Mm-hmm. This was yeah, in the early 2000. Movie. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But the documentary is better. If you haven't seen the documentary, it's called Z-Boys, uh, or Dogtown and Z-Boys. It, it, the movie is based on this documentary. It's basically about the kids from Be- Venice Beach who essentially accidentally created modern day skateboarding. And right. back then, Venice Beach was was known as Dogtown. It mm-hmm. was it was known as the ghetto by the sea. It was a very, very poor neighborhood. Uh, super filled, seedy. Right. Filled with what they called white surfer trash, right? It's hard to imagine now because you have to be very... I mean, there's still seediness in Venice, but to live yeah. in Venice, you have to be very, very wealthy, right? Mm-hmm. But back then, you didn't. It was lower middle class white people, right? This is the 70s, right? And basically, this group of kids who were all sort of punk rock, juvenile, delinquent surfer kids, they got frustrated with not being able to surf during the winter and when the wave were breaking or when the ways weren't breaking rather so they started skating in empty pools because yeah. in this it, i guess this year one of these years in the 70s i forget what year it is it was there was a major drought in southern california and in west la there was a government mandate that everyone had to drain their pools for the entire Crazy. summer mm-hmm. so there were all these empty pools all over west la so they would break into these these houses and swim in these swimming pools with somebody looking out or swim. They would skate in these swimming pools. And when the cops would come, they would get alerted and they would run off. And, you know, they were, they were just punk kids. Right. Yeah. And, and then when the, when the drought was over, they actually bought their own gear and would drain some of these pools, like all over town skate for 10 minutes. The cops would come and they, and they'd run Run off. off, Right. That's crazy. But, I think the most interesting part of the story is that these kids were just street kids. They mm-hmm. they had no desire or goal to make any money whatsoever. It was just about having fun and being a punk, right? That's what yeah. they were. It wasn't about and starting the, a movement either. No movement at all. It was just having Doing fun. Something. And yeah. they felt when they were skating these swimming pools, they felt like they were in the water and it was a mm-hmm. great, like just sort of way to be surfing all day. They started skipping school and just doing this every day, right? And then all of a sudden they started to get noticed and treated as real athletes and they started to get sponsorship and opportunities to travel around the world and skate on teams and pose for magazine covers. And some of them, uh, you know, started making huge money, like millions of dollars. Some of these, mm-hmm. like these original guys that, that, yeah. that these Venice skaters, and it tore them apart. Like it destroyed their friendship and it destroyed the reason they first started doing it in the first place. And, you know, it made it all about the money. And there were people in that original group of kids. They were this group of kids were called Z boys because they belonged to a skate uh, team called the Zephyr skate skate shop, which was in Venice. Right. And 
the Z boy, there were, there were some kids in that group who were less inclined to take endorsements because they felt like they were like selling out, you know, Mm -hmm. and that caused a huge rift between them and the ones who were more willing to play the game and make a career out of this. Look down upon. Right. The bottom Mm -hmm. line here to close this out is that art and money have a very contentious relationship. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I consider the invention of skateboarding art. Skateboarding is art. It's Mm -hmm. very art, very artistic kind of sport when whenever you mix art and money there's going to be problems it's really as simple as that yeah look, so, i agree and yeah. you know like i'm in a, new, a unique position to speak on this here as are you i've worked in entertainment on the business side for almost 20 years yeah it's the rule money yeah. and art are at odds it's not yeah. a question of should artists make money of course they should and right. it's good but yeah. it ruins art yeah. Uh, yeah go ask kurt cobain but there you go perfect example So we got news to go over this week, and in true DTM fashion, we will try to give you some news that perhaps you're not hearing on mainstream media networks, and for the things that you are hearing, we're going to go over them and try to give you a different spin on them that you're not hearing Anderson Cooper give you. So that is what this segment is about. It's news, it's culture, it's the intersection of both, and it's called Turn on the News. Okay, so uh, big news of the week, if you've been living under a boulder, (laughs) Donald Trump was acquitted for the second time by the U.S. Senate. (laughs) Justin, tell us how it all went down. So Saturday was indeed a decently confusing and insane day in our country's history. The impeachment trial continued as planned, and for the most part, the outcome came as no surprise to anyone. Trump was acquitted in a vote of 57 to 43. We all knew that there weren't enough votes to convict. We've known that pretty much since the beginning of the trial. We also knew who on the Republican side, for the most part, would vote to convict, and all of that came to pass as well. The piece that no one saw coming was a near-successful attempt by House impeachment managers to open the floor to new testimony from witnesses. This was a surprise even to Senate Democrats, who at first voted to call witnesses and then relented as a negotiation was struck, allowing a public statement from Representative Jamie Herrera Butler to be entered into the record. I know we'll get into this more in a minute, but I think it's important to understand what would have happened had this vote stood. After that initial vote, there would have had to have been another vote on a simple majority basis to subpoena specific witnesses, like Representative Butler and or anyone else. Once this passed, the trial would slow down dramatically and the chamber would have to call a recess to depose the witnesses. After the deposition or depositions, the chamber would have had to set and vote on new guidelines on what to do with that testimony that derivated from the witness. Or witnesses. Genius attorney Michael Vanderveen said he would need at least over a hundred depositions, not just one, shortly before this vote was called. Obviously, uh, this whole thing is very disappointing, and uh, it's a huge mistake that the Republicans uh, mm-hmm. made and are making. Uh, yeah. I think I think it's officially safe to say that impeachment doesn't exist. I mean, if Trump can walk free without any consequences after what transpired on January sixth, we're likely not going to ever see anything worse than that. So why why not just erase impeachment from the Constitution and admit that it's meaningless, honestly? Because, like, what I would rather see moving forward is get rid of impeachment altogether, uh, since impeachment is a political process and not a legal one, and in its place, amend the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion that a president cannot be legally prosecuted or even indicted while in office. I mean, let's get rid of the political crap that always ends up in a partisan verdict anyway. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, this has happened with all of the impeachments in our lifetime. Yeah, of course. It always is going to end up. It's all partisan, mm-hmm. right? Let's get rid of it altogether. And let's actually be able to hold the president accountable legally, right? I mean, how do you feel about this? Because I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that if a president commits a crime in office, they can't be charged with that crime. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to be a king. Why should they be above the law? I'm with that. And I mean, the truth of the matter is, is this isn't over in terms of the impeachment. Obviously it is, but there are other, and we'll talk about this in a second. There are other cases out there that have to do with January 6th that may implicate him criminally. Maybe. Yeah. So it's possible that there, that justice will be served. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is the only good thing that could have come from this wasn't even the conviction vote itself. It was the vote after that. Yeah, to to hopefully have him never run again. Never run but again. But the 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 conviction itself wasn't going to do much. I mean, it's it's an it's kind of empty. Yeah, I just think you know, I think it's ridiculous. This uh, again, this is the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion that's been uh, been um, around for many many years now. Yeah. That that the president can't be convicted. Why the hell not uh, of a crime while they're mm-hmm. in office? They should be. They should be treated like the rest of us. And I would sooner. I, I don't want to see any more impeachments because I think they're a waste of time. They're a waste of money. They're a, a political sideshow. Well, it's the same as the censure. It's the same thing. It doesn't mean anything, really. It doesn't it just, mean it's, anything. It's, it's, it's a political you know, ta- process. It's not legal. Yeah, a lot of people are, are mistaken about that. Agreed. A lot of people well, think because that of the terminology, because right. the terminology they use, convict sounds like a criminal exactly and that's the problem right so beyond all that i'm going to give you give you guys another narrative that you're probably not hearing on the networks right now and that is that the democrats blew this thing as they almost always do and that's not to say that their case wasn't presented well it was Mm -hmm. it was very much presented well uh it was more a mistake in the process that caused insurmountable issues for the Democrats. So first, they blew the timing of the thing from the beginning. They did Mm -hmm. the snap impeachment in the House, meaning to uh, rush to get it through, presumably because Trump was such a threat, they needed to get him out of office immediately. So the insurrection happens on January 6th. The idea is then that they'll impeach him on January 10th, which is what a snap snap impeachment is, and will get him removed from office by January 15th before Mm -hmm. his term was over. Okay, that was the entire point of a snap impeachment impeachment urgency. Right. But the Democrats failed to move quickly enough in the Senate, which they could have done. Nancy Pelosi, again, she dropped the ball here. She waited a completely a really long week and an unnecessary amount of time before transmitting the articles of impeachment to the Senate. By the time it got there, it was too late. And now there's no more time to do it before Trump leaves office. So we have to do we have to do it after Trump leaves office, which sort of diminishes the effectiveness of calling something a snap impeachment and then also introduces the question as to whether it's even constitutional. Well, it gave the Republicans. I mean, we, we talked about the precedent twice now for, right. for this to exist. It gave Republicans cover to duck under. Of course, yeah. They, they could use this. Well, is it constitutional to even impeach a president that's out of office? Had they got it done before he left office, wouldn't that wouldn't have been, have a, been question. a question. Right, right. So now, you know, all of that would have been fine if the Democrats were then willing to do a full impeachment trial, complete with witnesses, have it drag on as long as it had to. But the Democrats clearly weren't interested in this, probably because they thought it would impede Biden's ability to pass legislation if the Senate was solely focused on impeachment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how I know the Democrats weren't willing to go the distance on this is, you know, uh, I think you mentioned in your in your synopsis last week in this Jamie Herrera Butler 
um, who is a Republican congresswoman. She came forward about a phone call that she overheard between Trump and and Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, as the insurrection was happening, in which McCarthy basically pleads with Trump. He pleaded with Trump to call this insurrection off, like call off the dogs, right? Tell the people to leave. And then Trump apparently said to McCarthy, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are, which absolutely goes against what Trump's attorneys were saying at the trial, you know, that he was horrified by what he was seeing on TV. The fact is, we have plenty of evidence now that goes to Trump's state of mind while the events of 1-6 were playing out, and the Democrats were rightfully trying to get witnesses called. They then bailed on that entire idea, one, because they were receiving veiled threats, essentially, from certain Republicans if they were to call witnesses. And two, presumably they became concerned that the trial would drag on too long and that would affect Biden's legislative well, Those agenda. were the Republicans' threats, right? They, and right. They, so you saw this from the attorneys. We'll call 100 people. We'll call 300 of course, people. Of and course. And that you got to vote on the person. It's like five votes in, in Who there. Who cares? Get, get, every, get all, at least sure. your case out, right? Sure. So yeah. basically the Dems blew it from both sides. They called for a snap impeachment in an effort to get Trump removed as quickly as possible. They failed to actually deliver the articles in time for that to happen. Something, if the roles were reversed, by the way, would never never have happened at the hands of the mm-hmm. GOP. They would have rushed it through. You know they would have done that. Uh, and then the Democrats proceeded with a trial, but laid down on actually making it a full trial with witnesses and a full investigation and everything else. They should have dragged it on as long as it needed to be dragged on in order to get all the information out to the public. Instead, now the whole thing just looks like a partisan exercise. And sure. the public will never get all the evidence. And it's really a shame. It, it, it's over. It's, it's, it's done. They did lay out a good case, and and you're right. It's unfortunate that the the trial had to be cut short. I mean, yeah. I wonder your opinion though on what did occur in terms of you know COVID relief, in terms of a le- legislative agenda, and the ability for Democrats to win again in two years. You have to imagine this was going through their minds when I'm they sure it was. were trying to decide like, do we want this to envelope the next however many months of our lives and and uh, you know get in the way of us legislating. Yeah, I mean, listen, I understand the counter argument. I just think if you're doing it, if if you are not going to do the snap impeachment thing, you already blew that at least then go through a whole thing so it doesn't look so partisan. And it also doesn't look like you were caving mm-hmm. on the uh, the witness thing, which is what, what happens. They should have at least called that one witness and then said, OK, we're done. Just get right, that why, information why bother, out there. Why, why bother creating a vote to call witnesses if you're not right. going to go through with it? Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, one other thing I want to suggest about uh, what the Republican strategy might be here. Now, the Republican strategy and disclaimer, this is just a hypothesis. I have no proof of any of this. I'm just speculating mere speculation. Okay. the truth of the matter is that Trump has been terrible for the Republican Party, both from an ideological perspective and also on paper. Okay. In four me. in four years, he is almost singularly responsible for losing all three branches of government to the Democrats, and the Democrats aren't exactly uh, you know the kings of popularity either. So that's the, that's some trick. Um, but Trump has an extremely passionate base, more than most people I think alive have ever seen. But he is single handedly responsible. Uh, for for losing huge portions of once Republican voters, the college educated people with high paying jobs that we've talked about, and especially suburban women have left the party in record numbers. And yes, he gained a little on the minority front. It doesn't make up for it. In other words, the damage he does 
to the party is greater than any benefit he provides the party at this point. So here is my theory. Tell me what you think about this, Justin, because maybe I'm way off base here. Again, I'm just making this up. But the Republicans know this about Trump. They know that Trump's presence isn't doing them any favors anymore. Mm -hmm. But they also know that they can't piss off the base and come out against Trump, right? That could backfire and be even more devastating to the party. So I think their public position is we stand with Trump. But the private position is handing over all the evidence and materials that they have, uh, you know, so that he stands a chance of facing real criminal charges as a Mm -hmm. private citizen, like you were saying. And we already know this is happening based on what you you said about Georgia last week and what we know know about now there's cases in New York. He's being tried all over the place, right? So Mm -hmm. think about this for a second. This would accomplish a number of things for the Republicans. Number one. Trump gets charged and convicted criminally and can't ever run again. Mm-hmm. Number two, because he's going to be tried in Democratic states like New York, the GOP could band together and blame liberal and or Obama judges for Trump's Sounds conviction, mm-hmm. claiming it was politically motivated. This, of course, riles up the base. Three, in 2022 or 2024, they run on the message of cleaning up the judiciary and getting rid of the, quote, activist judges. The point is they kill three birds with one stone. They get rid of Trump. They save face in front of the base because it doesn't appear that they turned on him. And then they get an additional narrative to build on for the next election cycle. Again, I have no evidence that this is what they're doing, but it would be rather brilliant. I'm calling the the head of GOP right now. (laughs) Right. There you go. Uh, Now, if I'm wrong, let's assume I'm wrong about the covert Mm -hmm. Republican plan to rid the GOP of Trump. Then Mitch McConnell, who has long been pitched as the single greatest political strategist of all time, Mm -hmm. uh, made a serious error in his strategy this time around. So, So McConnell gets up after the acquittal. Again, Mitch McConnell, who was so upset after the insurrection on the 6th of January, voted to acquit Donald Trump, and he blamed it on procedural bullcrap and the idea that he thought it was unconstitutional, which is nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then he gets up after the acquittal, and he says something very honest on the floor of the Senate. Uh, The honesty is not the part I have a problem with. The part I have a problem with is that he's trying to have it both ways and he failed. He failed miserably. Okay. first, let me play a clip of some of what he said. Cocaine Mitch. Go. They did this. Because they'd been fed wild falsehoods. By the most powerful man on earth. Because he was angry, he lost an election. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. Okay, so I sort of recognize that speech as being McConnell's way out. He's saying, I'm not going to impeach him, but I'm also going to do whatever I can to rid the party of him. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I took that speech, right? I mean, is that how you took it? Sure. Not that, I mean, you know, you, we saw how much sway he has today with that poll. But yeah, that's his attempt. I think, I don't know. I can't tell if it's him trying to read the party of, of Trump, which I know he has been trying to, to openly yeah. do, or if it's him trying to cover his, his ass with the base. Yeah. See, well, you know, Mike, see, I was going to guess that people like you, like my buddy Jay over here, uh, I should say my buddy Justin over here, <laughs> uh, might be inclined to be thankful that a speech from the supposed leader of the party like that came at all right like that that's always been your sort of thing i'm happy to hear it 
Right. Okay. The problem. Do I wish he would have voted to to convict? Yes. Right. Of course. Well, I don't. I, but but that's because I don't personally see the unconstitutionality of it because uh, no. I've done the research Ridiculous. and I see the yeah. precedent. I think mm-hmm. that that's it's just a cop out. Right. And, and that's what I was going to say is that the problem is it backfired. So Trump releases yeah. a scathing letter yesterday in which he says, "Quote." Mitch is a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. Fact check true, by the way. Um, And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. This, by the way, coming from a guy who just lost an election to a dude who is clinically dead from the toes up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? He he goes on to say, quote, he will never do what needs to be done or what is right for our country. Where necessary and appropriate, I will back primary rivals who espouse making America great again and our policy of America first. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So I mean, none of that actually means anything. Other than of course not. But uh, here's what does mean something. Okay. McConnell massively screwed this up because mm-hmm. he could have taken the high road. I-, I won't even call it the high road. He could have taken... Uh, the most beneficial road to the GOP and not wussed out. He could have whipped up enough support within his caucus to actually Mm -hmm. impeach Trump. There's no doubt about it. He's Mitch McConnell. He's the leader of the party. What he says goes, and he is supposed to be a master whip. What does a whip mean? A whip is someone who gathers votes among a caucus, right? Um, Mitch McConnell is considered the greatest the greatest whip of all time he could get anyone in his caucus do whatever he wants had he made the necessary phone calls and did a little convincing he could have whipped up support to impeach trump and get rid of him once and for all he didn't do that he did all the wrong things he voted against impeachment but then slammed slammed trump in his post-trial speech right so so now he has to endure trump's wrath like you were saying uh, you were commenting in private to me the other day Mm -hmm. like didn't he know this was going to happen Right. Yeah. So he has to endure the wrath, but he also absorbs the backfire against him. That's going to continue to foment as Trump lays into him more. Yeah. So you're going to come out against him. You might as well vote for him. That's what was so confusing to me. I couldn't tell if he actually does. He actually believe this is not constitutional. He must. It doesn't make any any sense otherwise. No, I I think he's honestly just losing it. I mean, he has divided the party more now. This is stupid politics. It's utterly stupid. And and if Trump is going to get off these criminal charges as a private Mm -hmm. citizen, if that does happen, I think he's going to take down all these guys like McConnell or anyone who didn't give him 100 percent support. The point is, which is what they were all scared of when he was in office. Right. The point is, I want to scream in in cocaine Mitch's face. I want to take him by the lapels and say, cocaine Mitch, you had your chance to make things right and you didn't do it and now you have to pay the price right that's essentially what's happening speaking of trump's um criminal charges potential criminal charges talk about georgia a little bit so before we even get to georgia there's some other rumblings of justice going around on tuesday the ex-president got a taste of what's to come when the naacp on behalf of mississippi representative benny thompson filed a federal lawsuit against him and and rudy giuliani accusing both men of conspiring to incite the January 6th riot and thus violating the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act. The, the suit seeks compensatory and punitive damages and also names the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers as defendants. It's also not off the table that possible state and federal charges could be charged against Trump, according to D.C. Attorney General Carl, Carl Racine. That's not to mention a defamation suit brought by E. Jean Carroll, who accused Trump of raping her in a department store in the 90s, a defamation case from Apprentice contestant Summer Zervos, accusing Trump of lying about sexual misconduct, and of course, the New York State investigations into alleged bank and insurance fraud by the Trump Organization 
being pursued by the New York AG and Manhattan DA. And of course, the aforementioned Georgia criminal investigation into the call between President Trump and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Not much new there, but we do know that there is a criminal investigation going on, and we'll see if and when charges are filed. Right. Okay. So that's good information. Really nothing more to say to that other than uh, hurry up and wait, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So speaking of partisan hacks, Justin, uh, Lindsey Graham, the Kim Kardashian of the U.S. Senate, (laughs) uh, has has lost his... mind okay yeah so so he was on fox a few days ago with chris wallace and uh he talked about uh moving forward in what uh, he is coining a trump plus fashion which is politically inept by the way uh and then he comments on how mitch mcconnell's little speech that we just talked about on the house on the senate floor has put republican members of the senate in a terrible position flimsy lindsey go And I said, Mr. President, uh, this MAGA movement needs to continue. Uh, We need to unite the party. Trump plus is the way back in 2022. Uh, He's mad at some folks, but I understand that. My goal is to win in 2022 to stop the most radical agenda I've seen coming out of the Democratic uh, presidency of Joe Biden. We can't do that without Donald Trump. So he's ready to hit the trail and I'm ready to work with him. Uh, What did he think of McConnell's speech? What did you think of McConnell's speech? I think Senator McConnell's speech, he got a load off his chest, obviously. But unfortunately, he put a load on the back of Republicans. That speech you will see in 2022 campaigns. I would imagine if you're a Republican running in uh, Arizona or Georgia or New Hampshire, where we have a chance to take back the Senate, they may be playing Senator McConnell's speech and asking you about it as a candidate. And I imagine if you're an incumbent Republican, there are going to be people asking you, will you support Senator McConnell? in the future okay so yeah. uh, again i have to say this is all mitch mcconnell's fault he yeah, could have ca- he could have called lindsey graham and said you have to do this for me vote for impeachment lindsey would have done it they yeah. all would have done it and now he missed the chance and now they're all backing trump and now it's going to be everyone against mitch mcconnell because he's already yeah. come out today and said he wants to go forward without trump This is what Trump does. This is what everyone was terrified of. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying they were right in keeping their mouths shut, but I, but I am saying they were terrified for their jobs and their livelihood. And this is why they did it. You're seeing it happen to Mitch right now. You're seeing why he played along during Mm -hmm. Trump's presidency. It's Trump just picks them off. It's what he did in the primaries when he was running for president. It's a pretty incredible thing. It's It's insane because anyone could do it. Anyone could just say you're dead to me. But but for whatever reason, when Trump does it, it really just stick like these guys just wither and die. It's more dangerous. Why why don't they just tell him to F off? Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's what I had. I had wished they had done when, you know, Jeb and these guys were running. Right. No one. No one could figure out the strategy to do it. it. Mm -hmm. And and now he's got the base behind him and he's way more dangerous than he was during the primary primary season or when he was 100%. running for president yeah so in ancillary news here uh nikki haley Yay. once widely considered uh the great white hope of the republican party uh gave an interview last week in which she finally told the truth about trump she said quote we need to acknowledge he let us down he went down a path he shouldn't have and we shouldn't have followed him and we shouldn't have listened to him we can't let that ever happen again he's not going to run for federal office again i don't think he's going to be in the picture i don't think he can he's fallen so far now nice piece, uh, nice piece of writing though that article yeah nice very, very good very good article it was in what was it politico 
Politico, right. Okay. Now, I, I personally think that Nikki Haley understood this years ago. She's sure. way too smart She's to savvy. have just missed it until now. And she said nothing. So in my book, that makes her complicit. To me, this falls in the category of Republicans who are suddenly acting surprised that it ended this way when we have been warning you about it for five freaking years. But, you know, I know that my buddy Justin here uh, has a different take on this. You know, as we've discussed before in the show, I think Justin is much more capable than I am of seeing past the cynical nature of politics and moving on. Uh, It's certainly harder for me. Um, So Justin, uh, you know, tell us how you feel about the Nikki Haley thing a little uh, before I play a clip of how Lindsey Graham feels about it. Well, I certainly, I I certainly think that it helps that I'm a Republican because I am, you know, pining for the party back. And so any opening I'm going to take. I also think that if we are going to get past Trump, we have to work to get past Trump. And these are steps in, in, in the right direction. I think that, you know, a lot of these people aren't going away. So if they are going to then turn their back on Trump and say, let's move forward. Here's what I feel about him. Here's what I felt about him all along. I, you know, and whatever that excuse is, it's going to be hard to accept and swallow. But swallow what we must because we got to get past Donald Trump. So any opportunity to take to any opportunity to do that, I'm going to take it. And I have always liked Nikki Haley. I, it right. was unfortunate that she fell in, under this spell or trap as you were as as it were right. and i'm i'm happy that she's one of the first to speak out i'll buy that for a dollar it's <laughs> not how i feel but you know again uh, you have a different background on this by virtue of the fact that you are a republican and yeah. i'm not right so uh here is what lindsey graham flimsy lindsey as i call him had to say about nikki haley's comments Donald Trump is the most vibrant member of the Republican Party. The Trump movement is alive and well. People believe that he brought change to Washington. Policy-wise, it was long overdue. Uh, all I can say is that the most potent force in the Republican Party is President Trump. We need Trump plus. And uh, at the end of the day, I've been involved in politics for over 25 years. Uh, The president is a handful. And what happened on January 6th was terrible for the country. But he's not singularly to blame. Democrats have sat on the sidelines and watched the country be burned down for a year and a half. And that said a damn word. And most Republicans are tired of the hypocrisy. So, no, Nikki's wrong about President Trump. Uh, North Carolina, the biggest winner, I think, of this whole impeachment trial is Laura Trump. My dear friend Richard Burr, who I like and, and have been friends to a long time, just made Laura Trump almost a certain nominee for the Senate seat in North Carolina to replace him if she runs. And I'll certainly be behind her because I think she represents the future of the Republican Party. I mean, is he is he running for president? Is that what he's doing here? Uh, I, I doubt it. He's too old um, and no one would, would vote for him. But, no, uh, but, but he, I mean, he's just He's yeah. full in. It's, completely. It's like, that, yeah. that is Lindsey Graham completely doubling down on Trump, which is honestly not something I expected of him. If you remember, no. after the insurrection, he gave a pretty pas- passionate speech on the Senate floor about how he was done. He said something mm-hmm. like, I hate it for it to end this way, but count me out. I've had enough. Right. Yeah. And here he is flip flopping just a few weeks later and counting himself uh, back in and even endorsing another Trump for off- office in North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, this kind of thing should be deeply upsetting to anyone who calls himself a Republican or conservative and wants to see a functioning and healthy Republican Party. Yes. Justin, you agree? I completely agree. Uh, it's terrifying to me and I hope he goes away. Right. So in a further trumping of the Republican Party, GOP senators that voted to convict are facing backlash from inside their own party. And what I can only and ironically call cancel culture, Senators (laughs) Richard Burr of North Carolina and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana 
have been formally censured by their respective state GOPs. It looks like the same thing is on deck for Senators Susan Collins and Pat Toomey. And as of last night, it was confirmed the same has happened to Senator Ben Sass. So I mean, this is terrible. Terrible for yep. the party. It's more infighting. Yep. You yep. see a split party here. It's really bad. These guys acted with their conscience. They right. acted in good faith. They did it in the face of uh, everything that their party was trying to hold against them. And they're getting punished for it by their own party, by crazy leaders of state GOPs. And it's horrible to watch. Yes. Absolutely. Now, one more thing before we get off of, of impeachment, hopefully forever. I, I, I want to say one more thing and, and then we'll move on here. Uh, I think this is a, uh, a statistic that will make people think a little bit. Remember, I like math. Remember? Yeah. The, math, the, the, math, math with Riz. Math with Riz, exactly. Yeah. So uh, this is from um, Ian Milheiser at Vox. Okay. A quote uh, The block of senators who voted to convict Trump represents 76,704,798 more people than the block that vote, voted not guilty. Okay. So almost 77 million more people are represented by the senators who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Now, I know all about our system of representation, I understand the intention of the Electoral College. But let me just ask this question. Does that statistic sound to you like what the founders had in mind? That's all I'll ask. Like something to think about as the discussion over the efficacy of the Electoral College is likely to continue for decades. When I read that statistic, I just think to myself, is that what representative government is supposed to look like? 77 million more people are represented by the people who voted for impeachment? I mean, what's your take on that? I know you, you weren't prepared to really answer this, but give no, me your off the cuff. It's a stunning stat. I mean, right. you know, it's, it's flooring, really, when, right. you, when you consider that. So I, I think that there's something to, to think about. It's a lot to think about. Right. I think it's a, lot it's to a think great about. place to leave uh, this particular point because it's really, really, it's mind bending. Yeah, number. it is. We'll come back to, to to a similar subject on that, I'm sure, many, many times, again, as the Electoral College is going to be debated definitely during Biden's presidency, but yeah. for years and years and years to Moving on. Okay, there is one news story from this past week. Uh, if you listen to network media, CNN, ABC, NBC, and the like, uh, you might not have heard about this story, um, or it may have been just in passing. Maybe you heard a little bit about it. But uh, if you listen to or read right-wing media, uh, this was by far the biggest story of the week. They are still talking about it. And I think it's an important inflection point. By the way, when I say still, it happened over the, over last weekend, and they're still talking about it to this day. Today's Wednesday. Uh, I think it's an important inflection point. And, uh, and so I said to Justin that we have to cover this one. And because I have a lot to say about it, as I am known to uh, have a lot to say about a lot of things, uh, why not make it a rant, rants by Riz, go. So, actress Gina Carano, who played Cara Dune in Disney's hit series The Mandalorian, was fired amid social media controversy. So, the very first thing that should go through anyone's head before you even know the details of what happened in the story, you know, the second you actually read that headline, the first thing that should go through your head is that Hollywood, as we've talked about many times on the show, 
doesn't like conservatives, okay? So we've known this for like a 100 years, like literally. And so when an actor comes out as conservative, we should be very used to the idea that they could get blacklisted in Hollywood. This is simply just a part of life that everyone should get over at this point because it's not going to change and this this uh, you know, this really is no different. But but actually this one is a little different and I'll get into why it is, okay? So what was the social media controversy that got Gina Carano fired, okay? I think that's an appropriate question to ask, right? So she posted a picture on Twitter of a Jew in Eastern Europe running from German Nazis who are apparently assault, assaulting her, right? And she wrote under it, how is this any different from hating someone for their political views, right? So she was basically drawing an overwrought comparison between what she perceives as persecution of conservatives in the West today with that of the persecution of the Jews in Nazi Germany, right? Now, like I said, that's an overwrought comparison, but people make those kind of hyperbolic leaps all the time. So if you only saw the headline, Gina Carano fired from Disney series because she's a conservative, and then you only read that she sent out an exaggeratory, silly tweet making an overwrought Holocaust comparison, you may be inclined to think that this is discrimination on the part of Disney, right? But in order to get a more in-depth picture of the situation, we have to go back a bit first, okay? Now, I have said repeatedly on the show that corporations have to stop caving to the woke mob. I have presented examples of when they have caved and criticized them for this, and I have presented examples for when they didn't cave and applauded them for this. Put simply, Caving to the woke mob is a bad idea for corporations generally because it typically offers little gain to them outside of not having to deal with some nuisance harassment, typically at the hands of woke millennials. And as I've said many times, it will never be enough once you start caving. They will continue to want more and more. And no matter how woke you get, you will be expected to continue to cave until the rest of time or until the time where they actually shut down your business for good, okay? But a lot changed on January 6, 2021. And I can literally hear some of our listeners' eyes rolling now as they think to themselves, oh, here he goes. He's gonna bring this all back to the insurrection and tie all Republicans into it and blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what I'm gonna do. Listen for a minute, you might learn something, okay? Let me give an analogy first, okay? It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's suitable. Tell me the first word that comes to your mind when I say this name, okay? I'm going to say a name. You're going to tell me the first word that comes to your mind. O.J. Simpson. Burger. Murder, right. You ace that question, okay? Thank you. Probably three quarters of the world would say murderer when you say the name O.J. Simpson, okay? Most people don't think of the fact that he was also one of the greatest running backs in football history or an award-winning actor. They think murderer, okay? But this is despite the fact that O.J. Simpson was found not guilty in a court of law. Now, do I think he's guilty? Yes. Do most people think he's guilty? Yes. But in a court of law, he was found not guilty, yet his legacy is still murderer and always will be, okay? Likewise, Donald Trump will be remembered for inciting an insurrection on one of the most sacred government buildings in the world after lying about an election that he lost for two months, okay? Anything he did prior to that will be a footnote. History will remember him 
for the insurrection. And I know this because according to the polls, 66% of Americans believe Trump is responsible for what happened at the Capitol, one of the darkest days in American history, okay? Now, as we talked about earlier, Trump was acquitted in the Senate. So just like O.J. Simpson, he was essentially found not guilty. But in the court of public opinion, he is guilty, just like O.J. is, obviously for different reasons, okay? Don't get crazy. And the court of public opinion is oftentimes the only court that matters, especially when it comes to corporations and their profit margins, okay? Just like you don't see a lot of companies rushing to sign O.J. Simpson to an endorsement deal, you have a lot of companies now that want to cut all ties with anything to do with Donald Trump, including with the people who parroted Trump's more vindictive and destructive messages. So now that we have that foundation, let's go back to Gina Carano. Before tweeting out her overwrought Holocaust comparison tweet, there was much controversy brewing over two other tweets that she had sent out weeks earlier. The first was regarding mask wearing and the pandemic. She mocked Democratic leaders in a post writing breaking news alert and then showed two men with masks over their eyes rather than their mouths. She then wrote, quote, Democratic government leaders now recommend we all wear blindfolds along with masks so we can't see what's really going on. Now, they may, that, that may seem rather harmless to some of you, and me included, actually, because I'm very much used to right-wing rhetoric these days. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't really bother me. But the fact is that this message has massively conspiratorial undertones attached to it. She's saying that the pandemic and the health guidelines that were set forth by esteemed medical personnel and, you know, are all a part of a greater plan to deprive us of our constitutional rights. Now, this follows the same line of thought as another very pervasive right-wing conspiracy coined the Great Reset, whereby the pandemic was supposedly being used as an excuse to usher in a new world order style uh, governmental shift. So am I surprised that ears started perking up at Disney's corporate headquarters after they saw that? No, not at all. But yet she did not get fired. Then she tweeted out another controversial message after the election in November. She said, quote, we need to clean up the election process so we are not left feeling the way we do today. Put laws in place that protect us against voter fraud, investigate every state, film the counting, flush out the fake votes, require ID, make voter fraud end in 2020. Fix the system, end quote. Now, Some of that stuff is in line with what I would consider mainstream conservative thought, voter ID in particular. And of course, a lot of the right wing commentators cherry pick that one part, the voter. Well, voter ID, we've been talking about that for years. Nothing wrong with that. Right. But other things in there like flush out fake votes implies the disproven theory that millions of fake or illegal votes flooded in to our election system during the election, uh, which is not true. It's just blatantly false. It's a lie, okay? In fact, as we discovered on this show and then discussed, voter fraud in the United States is extraordinarily rare, and our system of voting is some of the most secure in the world. So am I surprised that ears started perking up at Disney's corporate headquarters after they saw that tweet? No, not at all. But yet, she did not get fired. Then the insurrection happened on January 6th. On February 9th, so roughly a month later, in response to what she perceived as persecution against her for having conservative thoughts in her head, 
she tweeted out her final post comparing that persecution she was feeling to the persecution of the Jews in Nazi Germany. At this point, over at Disney corporate headquarters, their ears had stopped simply perking up. This was the last straw. They fired her. Okay. Now, why did they fire her? Well, because she's bad for business. Disney is a corporation that specializes in entertainment for children. And this is why, for all of you silly socialists out there, capitalism always wins. Capitalism solves so many of these problems because it's only about one thing, and that's money and being profitable. Gina Carano was putting Disney's ability to make money in potential jeopardy because the viewpoints that she was espousing are simply unpopular and abhorrent viewpoints in the court of public opinion. And public opinion means a lot to a corporation that makes their money selling a product to the public, especially a product that requires parental supervision. But the story doesn't end there. In another great display of capitalism, conservative news outlet The Daily Wire, founded by, Bar- by Ben Shapiro and Jeremy Boring, uh, announced that they were hiring Gina Carano uh, for their new entertainment venture that they launched, where she would both star in and direct one of their upcoming films. Why is this such a great display of capitalism? Well, because just as Gina's association with Disney was a financial liability to Disney, Gina's association with a, with a Daily Wire venture is a financial asset to the Daily Wire. Conservative media thrives on the notion that conservatives are victims of cancel culture. And what did Ben Shapiro do on the day he announced this big news? He asked his audience for money. And how did he intro the fundraising pitch? By saying, quote, let's face it, Gina Carano was fired because she's a conservative. Now, I believe just last week I talked about something we we have to watch out for, which is the conflation of the moniker conservative with literally anything that could be construed as a violation of one's First Amendment rights. When Ben Shapiro says that Gina was fired because she's a conservative, the first thing that pops into my head is, is she a conservative? Let me investigate. So I scoured her Twitter posts. I watched interviews. I went to her Wikipedia page. I could not find a single thing about Gina Carano that suggested to me that she's a conservative. Now, if she had tweeted out, quote, Bernie Sanders is incorrect on economics. We don't want government intervention into our private sector. Hashtag socialism sucks. And she got fired for that. I would be the first one to say that's BS and she should sue Disney because that's illegal discrimination. If she had tweeted out, quote, the best medicine for America is a weekly dose of Sunday church. Hashtag Jesus saves. And she got fired for that. I would be the first one to say that's BS and she should sue Disney because that's illegal discrimination. I will even go as far as to say that if she tweeted out, quote, going to the March for Life today, hashtag I am pro-life, and she got fired for that, I would be the first one to say that's BS and she should sue Disney because that's illegal discrimination. But she didn't do those things. She sent out tweets insinuating that the pandemic was a hoax with ulterior motives attached to it. She sent out tweets suggesting that the election was rife with fraud when it wasn't. And then she compared backlash she received from those sentiments to that of the persecution of Jews in Nazi Germany. None of that stuff is conservative. And if you're thinking, well, 
It's the freedom of speech itself, the First Amendment itself, that's the conservative principle here. Well, the first thing I must point out is the irony in the fact that conservatives tried to cancel half the musical artists I listened to in my youth because of its lyrical content. But next, I would point out that the First Amendment protects one from going to jail for saying something or being hung in a public square. It does not protect one from any and all consequences. And you cannot simply claim everything anyone says as conservative thought so that you can then claim discrimination against conservatives writ large. To nail this concept home, I'm going to play a quick clip from one of the greatest movies ever made, The Big Lebowski. In this clip, Walter Sobchak, played by the great John Goodman, starts screaming expletives at his friend, known as the Dude, played by the great Jeff Bridges, in a small family diner slash coffee shop. The waitress reminds him that it's a family restaurant, and this is what happens. Now, so far, we have what appears to me to be a series of victimless crimes. What about the toe? Forget about the f***ing toe! Excuse me, sir. Could you please keep your voices down? This is a family restaurant. Oh, please, dear... For your information, the Supreme Court has roundly rejected Walter, prior restraint. This is not a First Amendment thing, Sir, man. If you don't calm down, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Lady, I got buddies who died face down in the muck so that you and I can enjoy this family restaurant. All right, I'm out of here. Hey, dude, don't go away, man. Come on, this affects all of us, man. Our basic freedoms. So the dude has to remind his friend Walter there that while the First Amendment allows you to say virtually anything you want, it doesn't remove all consequences from anything you say. If you start screaming expletives in a family restaurant, the restaurant employees have every right to kick you the hell out. What Disney did to Gina Carano is not cancel culture. Kevin Hart getting fired for making an off-color gay joke 27 years ago is cancel culture. Changing John Wayne Airport's name because John Wayne once said something racist is cancel culture. Being an a- and getting fired for it is not cancel culture. It's just life. Deal with it. Rant done. Wow, that was a lot to take in. That was yeah. a great rant. Well done. There's a lot in there that I completely understand and, uh, and, and I jive with. Right. But, you know, directly related to what you said, I hear what you're saying with the equivalence between the two things, but it, it all comes down to the same point, which is that a company can fire someone for whatever it wants anytime it wants to. Right. The real question here, right, is what is a good decision, a moral and, and right decision, and what is a bad decision? They can do it, they'll continue to do right. it, but what is right and what is wrong? So, you know, Hollywood was mean to an actor who sits on the right. It's not a shocker, as you said. I brought up the, the, the point of, does she sit on the right? Well, sure. That, 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 is, that is the big thing. That, uh, to me, that's, that's the main crux of, the, uh, of my rant and what needs to be answered. What classifies as sitting on the right? I, I hear that. And maybe that this isn't just conservative discrimination. Maybe it's just discrimination for saying something. Right. You know, I, I mean, that could be the case here. Uh, she hasn't out and out come out as a... As a person on the right and you know does a right winger mean that they don't believe in mask mandates no not necessarily but they're lumped into a section of that party right now right but this is what i'm this is what i'm i'm concerned about and i'm not really that concerned because i think i see through it so well that it's not going to concern me that much but what we are we are getting into a territory now where triggering the lips or owning the libs is considered conservative. So whenever you say something that makes somebody on the left upset, mm-hmm. we got to put that person in the conservative category. They're a conservative now, just like us, right? And 
that becomes a dangerous thing because then you start, it becomes more dangerous actually for the right, because now you're going to have to start to defend really indefensible things. And I'm not saying Gina Carano it no. falls in that category. No. But I'm saying if we start getting into the, the, the you, know, you know what I'm saying here? If yeah, we start I, getting I into the realm where, where yes. anything is conservative because it owned the libs. But that's up to the people doing the talking. I mean, she hasn't come out and, and said, I'm not a conservative. What the heck are you guys talking about? No, she accepted right. Ben Shapiro's handshake. Of course she and did. she said, welcome Daily Wire. You know? Because everyone wants to belong, Justin. That's, <laughs> that, 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 that's part of life. Fine. She feels like she's getting censored. And this is but the fine. problem. Then is she that, gets to be a conservative. She gets mm-hmm. to make that yeah. decision. Right, right. But that's the problem is that conservatism is now being conflated with just being either a jerk or a conspiratorial uh, loon bag. And these people are getting hit from the left. Finally, they're getting hit from corporation. I don't even want to say the left. They're getting hit by elements of society that are saying we no longer want this this element involved in our business. It's not good for our business. And it's and frankly, it's not good for society. And they're looking for comfort on the other side. And the problem is you have the right taking them in now and embracing them and saying you have a home here. That's what you should be worried about. I don't think that that's a danger. I don't think I'm not worried about it. And, and la- you know, I'm not worried about it insofar as it's a, just another human being and they're making a decision. But what happened here in this particular instance is not, yeah. there's nothing really wrong with what she tweeted. There really isn't. There are plenty of examples I could point to from other people. And I don't know what, on what side the, of the aisle these people are from, whether that's Pedro Pascal yeah. or, or uh, Letitia Wright or Lou Yaffe, like, yeah. They all tweeted things. They're all under Disney, the Disney banner. And well, let's I don't break know one of them down the for right. a second. Sure. Right. Okay. So Pedro Pascal, I think, is the one who also tweeted an overwrought Holocaust comparison. Right. Among other things. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, but I think the one that I that I heard right wing commentators, two. there's a comparison to Nazi tra- concentration camps to American migrant housing facilities. Right. And he's written tweets comparing Trump supporters to Nazis. Okay. Okay. So. Here's the difference, because uh, I've heard right-wing commentators now, since this whole story broke, say, well, this is a double standard. Pedro mm-hmm. Pascal, because he's on the left, gets away with making overwrought Holocaust comparisons. First, I want to say, as I know you believe as well, Holocaust comparisons are so stupid. They I have to that. stop. We yes, have to I stop comparing that. everything to the Holocaust. They're yeah. stupid no matter who does it. And, getting, and even comparing to Trump to Hitler is stupid. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But, but with that said, Pedro Pascal... I saw the tweet. He posted a picture of children in cages, uh, you know, migrant children in cages. And he said, this is America and made some kind of Holocaust reference. Right now, again, I condemn that. I hate that kind of comparison. But there is more there. It is a more apt comparison to compare kids in cages to that of the Jews, the persecution of Jews in Nazi Germany than it is to compare the persecution of American conservatives that aren't being persecuted just because they're saying crazy things to the persecution of Jews in the hot doesn't make either of them right. I'm just saying there's a distinction. They're, they're different things. But I also think it's crazy to compare Trump supporters to Nazis. We're not like Trump's people that that supported Trump aren't going taking Jews to concentration camps and kill yeah, them. I agree. He did it's that, crazy. too. And so that, to me, it's a little off kilter that they're yeah. they're condemning one and not the other one. And Letitia Wright, she tweeted something that's uh, that was an anti-vax statement. So you want to talk yeah. about the mask thing? These mm-hmm. are apples to apples comparisons. Of course, but but what you're not the the one part you're leaving out in your analysis is the one part I hit you with in this in in, in my rant, which is that though all those things happened prior to January 6th. And what I think is that this is a business decision on the part of Disney. Mm-hmm. 
thing, Trump is toxic to certain businesses now, okay, because of the court of public opinion and all that I just talked about. So I think they looked at that and said, this person's not good for business. I don't, I really don't think it was Disney trying to be woke or, or caving to the woke, as I've said many times, is not good to do. I think they literally were saying, this person is hurting, is has a potential to hurt our business, can her. That's it. Yeah, but look, if it's not cancel culture to do this, it's not cancel culture to do Kevin Hart because it's the same reasoning. This guy said something that's inflammatory. We don't like it, and we choose to fire them. See, I... I think cancel culture is more is a broader thing so it's like with uh, with kevin hart they found a tweet from however many years ago where he Mm -hmm. said something mildly homophobic and not only did he get fired but he sort of lost his whole career like it's a big big deal all right gina carano same thing could have happened here very easily yes but kevin but Again, there is a big distinction between making a singular off-color joke and parroting narratives that are extraordinarily toxic to a, a corporation after an insurrection took place on our capital a month ago. It's a different thing. You are lumping her into a category that she really doesn't deserve. We have seen examples of of the full conspiracy theory believing Trump supporter who, you know, this and this is the important part support and aided in the incitement of violence and because of that last part their voices are dangerous and they should not be given a platform to speak it's not right. what we have here it's no, it's a completely not. different thing so that's why i rail against companies and that that are i believe are virtue signaling in this way they're lumping her in to a group of people she does not necessarily belong to it's poor reasoning on the company's part yeah, but she does belong to it, and and her her uh, willingness to take the Daily Wire gig right away. Show, it she belongs. She, she might belong to the conservative contingent, but she doesn't belong to a group of people that have outwardly condoned violence. That's my point. No, she okay. She's not an insurrectionist, but she no she, doesn't. I, I'm not I even just, talking about storming the Capitol. I'm talking right. about either in any way, shape, or form, nodding or winking in the slightest bit at what happened. On one six, you want to bring one six into it? That's fine, but fine. She, but she, she, there's no tweet that's anywhere around one six. But she did say before one six, she made statements that were conspiratorial in nature about the pandemic. Okay, and she has a right to see. Again, I want to make it clear. I don't. I, she shouldn't be cast out of society for making those statements. But if a private company thinks. That statement right there is talk- and by the way again they didn't I, fire I, I, her I, for it. I they didn't and but uh, there was an, a news article that was saying they were looking for a chance to fire her after both that statement and the 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 next one she made which was uh what was it about again the voter fraud pandemic the voter fraud thing right so after so after she made both those disney from the article i read it was in the uh, in hollywood weekly or something mm-hmm. she, she they were looking for a chance and then this was the straw that broke the camel's back the overall holocaust thing but the point is both of those first two tweets Mm -hmm. she didn't get fired for and if she had i would have had no problem with that either especially after one six because of the fact that again the court of a public opinion is the only court that matters to a corporation it's why capitalism always wins but that's also that's also the court where cancel culture becomes a problem it's the same court of of, it's not cancel culture this is not an example i just disagree that this is an example of cancel culture this is an example of somebody doing something that their employer didn't like it's akin to the same as kevin hart the gigs he loses because of the thing he says is no different than the gig she loses because of the things she says. 
This was just her gig. Here's the difference. Her thing was live. Kevin Hart's thing was, I think it was like literally 17 years but ago. But it's the same thought okay. process that goes into the the firing of that individual for something they say. See, but I see a distinction in the fact that I will rail against the Kevin Hart thing because I think, man, this guy made one off-color joke. But you're drawing that line. Yes, but also there's a difference, line. Justin, between a joke and between a serious uh, a tweet that was intended to be taken seriously i view her mask tweet as a joke i think she was speaking she was being humorous about the restrictions the overwrought restrictions placed on people in california i mean we can agree to, to disagree that's on fine this. can we can we zoom out because i have an interesting perspective here that i think yeah. fits into your is she a actual conservative so yeah that that's actually a part i'm most interested to hear you talk about because again we're blurring the lines here of what it means to be conservative there is a both sidesism here so let's zooming out so like you know the question is and i'll pose this to the listener would you consider what happened to jk rowling cancel culture right the employee-led revolt against publications of any of her new books Jordan Peterson, who's been constantly attacked by the left, culminating in employees at his publisher, Penguin Random House, lodging an official protest against a new book. Political analyst David Shore, who tweeted a summary of a black Princeton professor's research about the historical impact of violent protests on Democratic voting. He apologized, was fired anyway. Right. So the attempts to silence these voices from being heard by anyone but the echo chamber is, you know, it, it reads as cancel culture and it's dangerous. So on the flip side of all that, conspiracy theory thinking is also incredibly dangerous, right? right. QAnon mass election fraud, the deep state, the great reset, things you mentioned, yeah. all unfounded conspiracy theories. Right. Both of these things challenge the legitimacy of democratic decision-making. Both of these things keep the other in an echo chamber without any diversity of thought. So on one hand, you have cancel culture advocates never having to feel uncomfortable or face any questions to their viewpoints or beliefs mm -hmm. because anyone voicing these can simply be canceled or called out and the fear of this kills any chance of discussion or discourse. Right. On the other hand, you have conspiracy theorists they can just dismiss critique as part of the conspiracy and move along with their day. Right. It's not a right or left problem, is my point. The issue can shift between parties. Yeah. Look at what I what I said earlier. It's happening inside the GOP. That's cancel culture. Yeah. And look at things on the left, like the Palmer Report, a pusher of unchecked flagrant conspiracy theories. Right. So my point is, is while some of what is going on may not be as politically specific as it seems, some of it is. And I, I don't know what the solution to these problems are. But reacting yeah. in anger and or with retribution won't solve anything, is my point. No, and you know, the, the honest thing, the, where I think this is all going is what mm -hmm. we've talked about before. There are going to be conservative movie companies and so-called mainstream or liberal movie companies. There are going to be conservative shoe companies and mainstream shoe companies. And it's we're, we're going to... See, I don't think this is going to end in some kind of civil war or explosion. I just think there is going to be... Part, corporate society is going to say, no more. Anyone who endorses these kind of things, mm -hmm. we don't want to have to do with that, deal with them because they're bad for our business, okay? So we're not doing that. And then there's always going to be the Daily Wires who are like, you have a home here, come here. Because all of our people don't care about that stuff. Sure, but the problem, the and, and I'm I'm all for a free market, and I think that that's right. a great system, except for the fact that these platforms that are being that the conservatives, quote unquote, are being ushered to, are not as big as the platforms they're being kicked out of, and so that creates a problem. So there are also not as many conservatives in the country. I hate to tell you, Justin, but there just isn't. <laughs> for sure, but you let know, yeah. me. But but there but there's there are still wants and needs and desires for diversity of thought that you lose when you kick people off of these platforms. So mm -hmm. I, I have another solution that, and, okay. and I don't, it's not perfect, but right. you know, maybe these companies need to need to be setting a better example, deal with these things with more compassion. I mean, Gina found out via social media that she was mm -hmm. fired yeah. from a very public platform. It's not what I would call compassionate. So maybe this is an opportunity for the free market to step in. 
like a yeah. new job role at a corporation, chief empathy officer. Yeah. Or maybe the solution is something like what's happening in the California State Senate. I texted you yesterday where Senator Melissa Melendez has introduced two bills. One is the Diversity of Thought Act, which makes political affiliation a protected class under the California Fair Employment and Housing Act, and an amendment to the state's education code requiring schools to counter bullying on the basis of a student's political belief, same as is done on the basis of race, gender, and sexual orientation. Yeah. So there are things that, because that I just think it's so bad for the country to, to split. I do like too. That. And, by and the way, that's why I, think I would that is, say you, you say you don't think a civil war will happen. Yeah, I think that is the new civil war. Uh, maybe you're right. But that's why I would say this. Here's my solution to this. Stop saying crazy. OK, just stop it. Not all of it's crazy is the problem. And this is a perfect example of someone who didn't say something all that crazy. There are perfect examples of people that did. But this, this what she talked about is not all that she talked about. Anti-voter fraud, which is fine. Right. She talked about overregulation, which is fine. And she made an overall comparison, which is really fine. It happens all the time. The overall yeah. comparison. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about at this very moment in time after the insurrection. And that's why I had to bring up the insurrection at this moment in time. Those things in this very politically charged, heated time are considered toxic to corporations. I still I do not believe that Disney was making a was virtue signaling here. I believe Disney was making a business decision because they are a company that caters to children. And that is a very slippery slope. You know, you, you, you're going to have a lot of soccer mom, liberal soccer moms in Brentwood who are going to be like, why is this nutcase on your payroll? You know, and they don't want to deal with that. I, I can understand it. if I was CEO, I wouldn't want, to, wouldn't want to do it either. I agree with you. The difference is that I think they're one of the same and we can, we can leave it there. Okay. Leave it there. All right, guys, moving on. We, we, we gave you a lot on this episode, as we say a lot here. But, We're uh, exhausted. Yes, we are exhausted. But, <laughs> but we are continuing on with our three-part topic of the day series on the legalization slash decriminalization of drugs. A uh, quick note first, uh, we hope you guys enjoyed or have been enjoying this multi-part topic of the day. Mm-hmm. We always found it challenging to break down nuanced and complex topics in a 30-minute podcast segment. So this has given us the ability to spread it out over several episodes and provide you guys with a deeper dive so you can hopefully uh, expect more of this in the future for sure. And uh, this is the topic of the day. It's a topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's a topic of the day. Topic of the day. Alrighty, Clay. Uh, we're gonna forgo buzzed history this week and make you the star of part three of the topic of the day. So let's do a little recap. I'm ready, coach. Put me in. Okay. Let's start with the lessons that we've learned from countries around the world that have attempted progressive i guess you could say drug policies if you will is that a good word progressive let's talk about them and and uh see if we could go over some of the stuff that we've already gone over on the last few episodes yeah just a just a quick recap for the the folks who've forgotten what happened last week um we've been talking in here about decriminalization versus legalization and the conclusion one can draw from a lot of what's happened around the world over the last 20 some odd years is that decriminalization can have very positive effects, but that doesn't uh, extend to reducing drug use. If anything, it stays neutral. Uh, But we do see some very positive effects nonetheless. Right. Uh, Like in Portugal, Yeah, like in Portugal, for example, we've seen a significant uh, increase in the number of individuals who uh, have gone to treatment centers 
significant reduction in HIV infections, TB infections, and other drug-related deaths. So there are positive effects, but it's a it's a mistake to think that uh, regimes around the the world of decriminalizing drugs have led to reduced drug use. That's not really the case, but there's still positive societal effects, and really perhaps most importantly for the, the the theme we've coalesced around on our on our shows the last couple of weeks is that you're spending a lot of money either way and yeah. uh aren't we at least just doing better with our money uh and societally doing better by trying to help people than we are jailing people and and ruining their careers and lives after that right i was gonna ask you're, you're referring to the justice system to the pe- to the penal system yes exactly i mean one 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 i think you know you all don't have to agree out there we're just giving you what we think to be the facts and smart opinions but uh i think it's a better use of money to at least try to get people better and get people help than it is to uh to incarcerate them particularly with laws in america that um if you got a felony, for example, I mean that can that can end everything for you. You don't get to vote anymore. You, you know, have to declare that on job interviews and all that. You know, especially right. if that incarceration comes without help. Exactly. Yep. And as, as, we, as we've discussed, and yeah. the the side effects of the incarceration for families. Um, and again, as Quite. we talked about last week, the uh, uh, deconstruction, if you will, of the nuclear family that mm-hmm. has been at the you know the root of this problem. Yeah. Um, of incarcerating people, and you still hear about it all the time, and people in jail for low-level marijuana crimes, and it's mostly in minority communities, not many white people in jail for marijuana, but, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a problem. It is indeed. Uh, but anyway, so so we we talked a lot about Portugal. I'm not going to go over that for you all again. But um, the, the lesson we learned from this is that if you want to have these positive societal effects, you can't stop at just making drugs legal or decriminalized you have to have a plan for what to do with people who need help if we're not going to put them in jail uh we talked about the purdue bankruptcy case last week and that's just one illustration of a rather obvious fact which is that that costs money and potentially more than we've been spending on the war on drugs um and the the refrain that you hear from proponents of decriminalization is that, well, the revenue from uh, decriminalizing drugs or even legalizing drugs in some cases is going to pay for this, and we're going we're, we're gonna to make all this money. Well, this is what you heard, uh, you know, just before the, what happened in California in, in the legalization of marijuana, for years prior, that was the argument as to why people should uh, vote for this issue, that the, the taxes were going to be huge and the state would reap massive benefits and it was going to be so great. Does that end up turning out to be the case? Well, in a lot of cases, it hasn't. And it's important to note here, I think, that because regardless of where you fall on here and whether you're left or right or center or something like this is one instance where I think the proponents for change are all people acting in the utmost good faith. Yeah. Like the 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 projections that I'm going to in a moment here just talk about rather dubiously. I mean, I don't think these were bad actors and I don't mm-hmm. think anyone thinks they were bad actors. The center of yeah. the center for American progress is, is trying to do great things. Uh, although really, uh, I am still mad at near Tandon for saying all those mean things about Susan Collins. So I just, right. I, I don't know that I can speak about this without getting <laughs> emotional. But, uh, other than that, um, you know, but th- these are all people trying to solve what is an obvious problem. And so, Throughout this discussion, I hope the listeners, I hope they've understood that what I'm trying to convey is just that there are issues with trying to really make this happen. Uh, but the efforts are noble, and that's not always the case when when change is trying to be made. Uh, I, I don't I don't subscribe ulterior motives to any of the people trying to make these changes, and I hope that we find a way through it. 
Um, but the, the, the refrain that you hear, as I say, is that taxes will pay for this. And I would just say not so fast because um, there is a dependency in that assumption on stopping black markets. And because and just to connect the dots, because you're going to take all of those underground operations, you're going to bring them out into the light. We're going to kill some of those externalities that we've talked about on the show the last few weeks. And you're going to get all that revenue into the system. Boom. Terrific. Everything's going to be good. Right. Because the, the demand, the idea is the demand shifts to the legal entities away from the illegal. Premise. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. So we talked last week about how California's market has not realize that, uh, you know, 75%, uh, it's estimated anyway, that 75% of marijuana sales in the state of California last year were still on the illegal market. So that is partially, I think, to explain why California's projections in terms of what they thought they were going to make just haven't come true. Um, but I, let's just, let's talk for a minute, um, just about one trade in particular. And this goes to a drug that in, in Oregon and other, uh, and in most countries has been decriminalized as opposed to legalized. But uh, it's it, it ties into a lot of what we've been talking about with our listeners the last few weeks. So um, the the opioid crisis in America has been so devastating for really two there's two giant pillars of it. One is people addicted, addicted to oxycontin and to uh, and to other opioid legal painkillers. But the other issue has been that when they're unable to get the opioid based painkillers, people have turned to heroin. Yeah. And in particular, in black the last tar. 25 years, black tar heroin has 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 spread like wildfire throughout the country. And again, I want to plug the the book I, I plugged a few weeks ago, a, a book called Dreamland that is yeah. all about this topic. It is it's just incredible. It's absolutely devastating. I mean, yeah. it's the kind of thing it's the kind of thing you read for a couple hours at night and then you don't sleep. It's it, but it's it tells a really important story. Yeah, even um, hillbillyology which we talked about on the show uh has has elements absolutely. of that in it. Yeah, towns just destroyed by this thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um so but so 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 the black tar heroin uh trade which flourished over a 25-year period while we were spending billions of dollars on the war on drugs. So most of the black tar heroin we get in America comes from the, um, apologize if I'm messing up this pronunciation, probably should have looked this up, but comes from the Jalisco region of Mexico. It's a, it's a state in Mexico on the middle of the country, western coast of Mexico. And it's a region where a lot of the uh, the poppy is grown that makes black tar heroin. Um, and in the towns in and around the Jalisco region, you basically have a, a seemingly endless supply of people willing to work in America for a few years, go to America to be dealers and distributors and drivers and any sorts of jobs you can think of in a drug ring, to make more money in America selling heroin than they ever dreamed of making at home, in these very poor rural towns and they get to be a really big deal when they return because they've got the money to do it. And these are, these are people who the, the poverty in these, in these areas is so bad that they go to America a few year for a few years, they come back, they, and they can afford to buy a nice big truck. They can afford to build a house. And that immediately puts them in the upper echelon of the society that yeah. in, in which they live. Right. And so you've just got people who, a never-ending people, the line of people lining up to do these jobs. And they know that the worst that will happen to them is that they'll get deported, and then they leave, and when they leave, more are sent. And the wheel just keeps on spinning round and round and round. And 
this is going to be something of a superlative statement, and I'm happy to receive mail uh, from, <laughs> from the listeners to be addressed, but there's really nothing we can do about this. And I say that because we've been trying to do something about it for 50 years, and in particular about the black dark heroin trade for the last 20, 25 years, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. You mean a big, big, beautiful wall wouldn't help the problem? Oh, well, of course, that would help the problem. That would completely stop the problem. As, as long I as meant it's to say beautiful. That. Yeah, yeah, as long as it's beautiful. It's, it's yes. got to be beautiful. Um, yeah. ugh, I'm so tired of him. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, sorry. So when you, so the point is, is this is just, just going to keep happening. And there, there you can point to hundreds and hundreds of stories of rings get busted up, and within 24 hours, the ring is back up and running. And it's, it's, it's just like whack-a-mole. And so the, this, I, I say all of this to say that those are actors that are existing in a regime in which we're doing everything we can to stop them. And so you are not incentivizing, incentivizing those people to stop operations by saying, hey, come out and do it in the open and we'll take half your profits this time. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's just, we, I, 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 we, I'd love to be able to say that, oh yeah, if we legalize or decriminalize it, then these problems won't exist, but they will. And especially because, and this goes to something you said last week, Rob, that I think is important. Part of what we need to do, I think, is sort of destigmatize the very notion of drug use and drug addiction. Yeah. And if you're, if you're a junkie who has this problem do you do you really want to be more out in the open about what you're doing, or are you probably just fine to keep it in this sort of clandestine underground lifestyle that allows you to hide the shame that you no doubt feel? Right. So I mean, I just there, there's there's no really great solution for ending these kind of black markets. Um, so so that, that's that's even just one lesson we can learn from all this is that the, the tax revenue. And we're talking about heroin, which is a different thing than what's happening in California with the legalization of, of, of marijuana. But the, the point being that you can't just say this is legal now and expect the illegal activity underground to come out in the open and give you that tax revenue that you've been projecting. Right. 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 They're still going to protect so, their, their profit margin. Mm-hmm. In other words, like, we any, cannot, like any good businessman or woman would. <laughs> right. Sure. We cannot mm-hmm. count on getting the tax re- revenue that we would need to make it a worthwhile endeavor. Is that because it's too difficult for these these entities to become legitimate? The the permitting and the the restrictions that the government obviously has to place on the sale of these substances. Is that why they're still, in your opinion, why they're they're not you know coming up above the ground, uh, the underground, and making this a uh, legal enterprise for themselves? Well, I think it varies substance to substance. So leaving leaving the heroin behind for a second for that for that it's you know we don't have a test case in America for what it would look like if it was fully legalized or even fully decriminalized. Right. Like we we've got Oregon, but that's brand new. So, right. but in that instance, my theory would be: why would these people come out in the open when they're getting away with it and getting rich, doing what they're doing? Yeah. Sure. I mean, so, I mean, literally, the, the, I, I'm imagining the meeting. Like, I, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's like you, yeah. you can, you can keep doing what you're doing. Only this time, you're going to tell us about it, and yeah, you right. won't make, make nearly as much money. Yeah, sure, yeah. right. Thank you. Down to profit. I think yeah. I'm going to keep subverting the law, and there's nothing you can flipping do about it. Right. You know, so I mean, that's mm-hmm. so. I mean, that, that's just a natural reaction. You know? I was always <laughs> misguided about the idea that the drug user would rather get their drugs from a reliable source where they know it's not laced with things. You know, it's sort of like in the marijuana trade in California. It's a very responsible drug user you're describing. Right, and I guess (laughs) guess I've I've underestimated that because, you know, potheads 
probably have a lot more sense, a lot more common sense than 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 uh, heroin users. So I always thought that the the great thing about legalizing marijuana is that it's regulated so that, you know, how, how often do you especially when we were kids? Uh, marijuana was laced with things like PCP and stuff. So you never knew what you were smoking, right? And and there was always a danger in that. So I guess my thought was always with the regulation of drugs, you would have more drug users who would be thankful for the fact that they were using drugs that they knew was coming from a reliable source so that they wouldn't die, you know? But I guess you're saying that that doesn't really hold up. I mean, well, I mean, I... I don't want to purport to be an expert in every in every category. I would surmise, based on what I know uh, and and what I've read, that it's not that that isn't a consideration, but the biggest consideration is I just need it. Yeah, yeah. I had. I just and, have to have it. And this and, is cheaper. And yeah. this is cheaper. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just sure. it's ease. It's ease and expense. I have mm-hmm. to think are the top two categories. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, but but to your question, Justin, though. Just to, to finish that up, that my answer on heroin would be different than my answer on marijuana, for example, uh, in terms of why the more doesn't come out in the open. I think in the end, these are still profit motivated people. And so it and, and so that is ultimately why it's just not worth it to a lot of people to come out into the light. Um, but I think it's useful in discussing this to contrast um, California, for example, with a place like Colorado. I was just yeah. going to go there because because I think I think Colorado was the first real the first state to really do this, right? I believe so. I can, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be yeah. fact checked on that, but I believe we're talking the, about they marijuana the first to legalize particular. marijuana. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so when you get to marijuana, you know, so remember just last week we talked about how the black market still dominates marijuana sales in California. Five years in, they have just made the projections that they, they said they were going to make when we, uh, when we as Californians, uh, you know, voted the prop in and, um, and made it legal. So in a place like Colorado, for example, which is a little more free market as to cannabis, they've done a lot better in terms of per capita, their, uh, their revenues. Um, I believe it took them five years to make $1 billion total, but that's really a result of population more than anything. And Colorado, I think, I, I don't want to offend anyone out there, but Colorado is more rich in enthusiasm for pot smoking, but yeah. they're, they're, they're not quite as, quite as rich on population. Right. Uh, and so it, it really does beg the question of, would they be able to sustain the numbers they have and the dominance of the legal market if we went to a wholesale nationwide decriminalization or even legalization regime? Because that brings a couple of factors into play. So, and really, it, 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 it comes down to the feds. So, once you get the feds on board, a couple of things happen. One, these shops get to use the interstate banking system. Because right now, it's still illegal to use the interstate banking system because it's illegal under federal law. And so you think, well, that would totally ease business. That would reduce overhead. That would result in more money. But the, the research overwhelmingly says that whatever gains you would have by being able to have those efficiencies would be outweighed by the heavy federal tax that would then be put upon these um, that would then be put upon these businesses. Um, and th- the other thing that kind of sticks in my craw about this, and this goes back to that to that mean near attendant again at, at the center <laughs> of American progress. Um, you know those 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 brave crusaders on the right in Congress. Um, when you look at all of the economic studies, and, and one in particular from the Cato Institute that the Center for American Progress relies heavily upon, um, they're putting up these very rosy numbers for the kind of money that we're going to make from legalizing all of these things. 
and it's important to note that the Cato Institute study in particular talks about legalization, ending prohibition of drugs as opposed to as opposed to decriminalization. And if you look closely at the study, you realize that the rosy numbers they're putting out there explicitly note that they are in part accounting for increased usage of drugs like heroin, cocaine, and others yeah. in their tax numbers. Mm-hmm. And so we can sit here and talk and say, look, for people who are concerned, it's not going to increase drug usage. Okay, fine. But the people that are selling you on this plan and who are selling you on the notion of all this money are assuming that the opposite. <laughs> and right. they're actually assuming that if you're in for this, you are for increased heroin and cocaine usage and other things. And the listeners will make up their minds. But, I mean, that's just something that still makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, I the, the My sort of a gating issue for me in having this discussion is, are we going to make the drug problem worse? Right. And if we are, then 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 I need to pump the bricks. Yeah. So yeah. let's, Agreed. you know, let's just make sure we're not letting we're not letting the economists run away with this in their in their in their, uh, in their assumptions for what's going to happen. So the obvious next place that we go is, you know, are we as a country ready, willing and able to invest in programs that are necessary in order to keep up the other end of the bargain that you're talking about. And the first thing you think about is state spending, right? And when you talk about state spending, the mind immediately goes to, at least in my opinion, wasted state spending, pork barrel spending. And, you know, I just to, to illustrate my point a little bit, uh, I have a couple of examples that are fun and we can, we can take a look at. The first is Illinois' 2018 budget, right? Here are some items include in the, included in the 1,245-page state budget. There's $13.1 million on an arts council chaired by the wife of Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan, which has been under scrutiny for misappropriating funds. Right. $23.6 million on programs to encourage bike riding. $75,000, which I know is a small number, but it's still you know, a decent amount of money, to encourage young people to take up golf. And they spend $25,000 on monarch butterflies, which is a lot of butterflies. I take so, <laughs> it you don't like. I take it you don't like government programs, Justin. Uh, it's so funny that you mentioned that, Riz. How do you, how, Rob? How do you know? <laughs> it's uh, not so, your favorite thing. It's not my. It's not my thing. Yeah. Just period. Right. So let's focus in next on some pork project spending. And right. and you know I don't know if a listener knows what this what this is. This references money that goes to districts represented by state lawmakers who vote on the budget. Um, so they appropriate funds to causes in their area that are going to get people to vote for them next time or things that they need. Um, you know, items include $10 million to update the privately owned, privately owned Uptown Theater in Chicago. And there was $2 million spent on a racetrack in Madison County, which should be a private enterprise and $30,000 to build a water park in the city of Harvey. The list goes on. You know, these are all things that should be done privately. So a report done in the same year by the Illinois Policy Institute reported that total, uh, all in all $54.2 million in wasteful spending and $27 million in pork barrel spending. And that's just one year. Uh, you know, and look, there's another report of wasteful federal spending that we're not talking about right now, but this one includes unused flight tickets totaling $100 million and just a missing $25 billion, just completely yeah. missing, just missing. But, but, but we're going to talk about Oregon in a minute, I know, and so I wanted to bring them up as well. So the U.S. Department of Labor determined that the state overpaid, the state of Oregon overpaid to the tune of $392 million in unemployment benefits. During the aftermath of the Great Recession, 
Hence me wanting to scope out that state aid section of the coronavirus bill, Rob. <clears throat> right. Um, but it, also independent <laughs> audits of both the Oregon Department of Energy and the Oregon Department of Transportation saw both agencies misappropriating funds to the tune of $347 million and $38 million, respectively. Adding up all of these recent expenditures, the state of Oregon has wasted or mismanaged in excess of $1.2 billion over the past five to seven years. So uh, you talk about accountability. I don't know where it is. You know, the watch groups that are making these, that are, that are reporting on these numbers don't seem to be doing anything. I honestly don't have anything to push back on that because I, I completely agree. Uh, wasteful government spending is terrible. Clay, do you have anything to say? Yeah, well, I think yeah, wasteful government spending is a problem in in just about every government, and yeah. it's yeah. a problem we have here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that Jay, I know that you um, don't have your head crammed up your ass. Uh, you're not the Republican on this uh, on this show that is a Republican slash Trump supporter. But it's important to remember, I think, that we've just freed ourselves of the yoke of the most corrupt president in the history of America. Yeah, and so all, all yeah, freedish. Good. Uh, but all, all the more reason why we should take oversight efforts seriously and yeah. not view them as playing politics purely, because yeah. whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, there is the opportunity for corruption. There is the motive for corruption. And so um, I, I, for one, am a proponent of, uh, of significant oversight. And it has its limits, but, you know. Speaking of corruption to the audience, uh, we were also had on our outline um, Andrew Cuomo in New York and all the scandal that he's involved in. We didn't get to it this episode. We will bring you that next episode. Yeah, let's continue. For sure. Yeah. Very good. Uh, anyway, uh, but yeah. So, so Jay, just to to follow up on on what you had to say, I think when you especially compare what we might do here compared to a place like Portugal, like we just don't have the affinity, the natural mm-hmm. affinity for social programs. That's right. That Europe yeah. does. It's mm-hmm. it's just a fact, and yeah. Yeah. Um, costs are a big part of that, of course. But it's just it's not. It's not in our psyche as much as it is in others, and there are religious... like Sweden or, or sure. some places like this yeah, that have just, you know not... just overarching, overwhelming government social programs, and that's that's it's in it's it's culturally uh, appropriate for that particular region of the world. Yeah, it, it's it's cultural, and there the religious implications. I mean, there's there's all kinds of things about it, and you know, I mean, I just think in general, um, you could expect. If you did polling on this, I would I would suspect that, you know, people in America will just have a greater objection to the subsidization of someone else's problem yeah. than you would in I other places. I mean, mm-hmm. shit. I mean, so Jeff Sessions think that, you know, he thinks that, you know, good people don't smoke marijuana. I mean, what the hell does he think about heroin users? Right. I mean, and and that brings us to, to another thing I wanted to touch on here, which is. Uh, in America, is there a willingness to invest in this kind of thing? Because, you know, I do I do sense that um, on both sides of the aisle, one of the main topics and Trump picked up picked up on this that has really gotten bipartisan sort of support is criminal justice reform. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think more and more people are um, angered by the fact that people are doing it has become more acceptable for low-level drug criminals to not be spending exorbitant amount of time in jail 
And uh, I think people want answers to that. And and the, uh, the, the question I have is, would Americans be willing to go along with a treatment program for drug addicts rather than a criminal program for a drug addict where they end up in jail, where their tax, po- tax dollars are paying for it anyway, right? And 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 that's another question: Is do we have do we know how much more money treatment of drugs of drug addicts would cost versus what we spend to incarcerate them now? Is there any is there any data on that? I imagine that data is in the works, right. and um, I think that again, I, I I spoke about the Purdue bankruptcy case as just one marker, and and really in some ways that number is misleading because that goes to a particular problem that is just, you know, it's many, many, many times worse than the crack epidemic was in the 80s. I mean, it's just, it's it's a drug problem, the likes of which this country has never seen. And so it, it could be that's an outlier. But I, I talked about that really just to illustrate that this ain't cheap. You're paying professionals here. And um, if you want people to actually get better, you have to train them. You have to educate them. You can't cut corners on addiction treatment. But that that ultimately makes this a politicized issue because because of, because of the amount of money you'd have to spend, there's going to be maybe even not all of the Democratic Party. Maybe it's sort of the outliers, the Bernie Sanders of the world, who believe that this is something to invest in. And I mean, you know, Rob, you could probably speak more to this than than I can. But I have a hard time seeing a program this big uh, gaining bipartisan support overwhelmingly. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't know. I, again, I could I think I could speak for the left wing where they've wanted something to to be done about this problem for a really really long time. But again, like I was saying, I'm sensing a lot more support on the right for uh spending less money on putting people in jail for these kind of you know, and maybe it's also I I'm the I, this it depends on the math and I think it also uh, and this is an assumption on my part, but in Republican areas of the country, that's where mm-hmm. they're getting hit hardest yes. with mm-hmm. with this drug ap- epidemic. That's the difference with the crack epidemic. That's right. Right, right. I, and I've always noted that there was a there was a, a difference there. There was a disparity in the way that white America addressed the crack ec- epidemic, which is crazy, uh, you know, violent black people. We need to put them in jail versus how everyone feels now about the heroin epidemic that is largely uh, consuming white America, you know, uh, I, I don't like, I don't like to break everything down by race. I, I hate race baiting as, as I've talked about on the show, but you have to, you have to uh, note the distinction. This is a sure. pretty, yeah. this one, this one, the, the lines are clear enough for the, the, the other thing about this is it, I don't think it's unfair just as a baseline proposition for people to say they don't believe they ought to be subsidizing drug use, even if that's what it will take. Like, I don't, it's hard for me to really begrudge that person if if they themselves are struggling doing all the right things and saying this other person is is as poor as I am only I don't have this problem and you're asking me to to make it my problem. Um and and the other the other thing I'd say just in terms of the bipartisan support is that you know Justin you'll appreciate this especially I've I've over the last 4 years been struggling with trying to be a person with Christian beliefs in America with trying to mm-hmm. be a person with Republican beliefs in America yeah. and some of those ideals have been corrupted. Mm-hmm. It's a sad thing, but it's just true. And so mm-hmm. I think that if you understand what the Bible says and what it means, then you'd be more open to this notion of this is something really worth investing in and lifting up the people yeah, helping people who, around you. 
who are in the Helping dark your neighbor, and, literally. And, lift, and lifting them into sure. the light. But uh-huh. the in terms of the political support, this the, the evangelical community has been so corrupted by the idol worship that is that is big orange that i just even even with <laughs> the orange. fact that, that the heroin e- epidemic appeals more to those communities that those voters are in i just yeah. i don't know that that's their mindset anymore maybe uh and i don't know that's a sad indictment and in painting with a, with a broad brush but i i think there i think there's research to back that up even if i don't like having to say it, it no it, it, it's a generalization but there are truths in it uh, i've seen it firsthand so i hear that now, what's, what I find interesting is we have an actual live case study going on right now uh, in Oregon. Clay, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, Jay. I think that the, the Oregon thing is something I'm going to watch really closely because it is the first of its kind in, in this country. And um, to echo what we said before, the idea is really great in spirit. And I think that this kind of ballot initiative is... In in some ways, maybe even myopically focused on ending the racial discrimination and destruction of lives that has come from the war on drugs. But we just we have to make sure that we are accepting the reality that we now need to have a plan to deal with the next step. And um, I think just based on what I've read, I think that this is a start and it doesn't go nearly far enough. And my, my hope will be that when this plan fails, as it may people will have the good sense to say it's because we didn't do enough, not because we need to go back to the old ways. Right, because it um, does seem set up to, to fail. Considering it does, it really, it really does in some ways. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about it. And I should say for everyone here, you all should go out if you're interested in this and read everything you can on Oregon Ballot Measure 110. Um, the, the comments I'm going to make here today are the result of me reading all of the materials on both sides advocating for and against but this obviously hasn't been put in practice yet and 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 so there there again there may be fact checks here that are totally fair because i'm not from oregon i'm not some expert on any of this stuff but the 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 basic regime i guess if we can start there is this is full decriminalization of all drugs up to certain thresholds not unlike what they did in portugal also not unlike what they did in portugal you have the choice when you uh, are arrested with that small amount to pay a fine, in this case $100, or, and this is important, you have to be referred to a recovery center to be screened and given an assessment to see if they think you ought to go to treatment after that. Now, a um, couple of issues here. They can refer you to treatment, they can't make you go, which I think we all understand the reasons for that. Um the issue is, though, that the money that is being generated by two sources, one, saving money from mass incarceration and arresting people for low-level crimes, and secondly, taking a large chunk, depending on the year, of the money being made from the legalized marijuana industry. Uh, essentially what they do is every quarter, every dollar over $11.25 million in revenue is routed towards this program. And that ends up being quite a bit. They, the, Oregon cleared $100 million in revenue last year. Uh, for uh, for uh, marijuana sales, um, but essentially, what this money is being done and what's being done with this money in the first instance is it's being routed towards establishing a system of sixteen referral centers, which are these screening facilities essentially. And so, what critics have to say about it is, so you're effectively just taking a lot of this money yeah. and routing it into a 
government bureaucracy where mm-hmm. it's going to take X many years to build all right. of these centers. Yeah, sure. And the centers are not, again, they're not treatment centers. These aren't rehabilitation facilities. Now, and they, they are more than just community doctor's offices. Like, they provide triage services, they provide counseling, they have to be open 24-7, 365. So, I mean, they're, they're not just a, a guy in a room who has a look at you and says, yeah, go see a doctor. Like, I don't want to undersell it. But these are not full-sale treatment facilities that are going to make people better. And um, in terms of money being generated by the program that will go towards such treatment centers... It's 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 really this is the kind of thing Justin's gonna gonna have something to say about you know it goes to the the Oregon whatever I can't remember the name the Oregon Health Authority I think is the name of the agency yeah and there is a board of yep. sixteen volunteers who decide Tons what to do with the tape. money and they could put it towards treatment centers but they could also put it towards you know low income housing yeah. they could put sounds it like a recipe for things. it's a yeah. recipe for government bloat. Is what it, it is. It yeah. very well. Yeah. It very well could be. And right. so when when I look at this, just the 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 amateur I am on this topic, but having read quite a bit about it, it looks like a really well intentioned idea to get rid of some of the problems. But the the solution is, is something of a fig leaf. Uh, there's there are going to be addicts, patients, people in pain who still can't get the care they need. And um, it's just we we go around in circles on this, but there's just got to be a ton more funding to deal with it. And I don't know where that's coming from. Now, I should have said earlier, talking about the state revenue numbers, that Oregon on their marijuana industry is doing fantastically. They are beating expectations. They're rising every year. So this could end up being being a success story where the the, the kitty is so full that there's money to put towards treatment centers and there will be treatment beds and all of this stuff, but um, a, a lot of the concern of, of people against it at this point, you know, actors in good faith against it at this point, is to say that all you're doing is taking money that was being used for all of these other good causes, non-drug related, or even, you know, training treatment specialists or whatever, and you're just building this network of of halfway houses that don't solve the problem, but that meet your goal to, re- to keep them out of prison. Uh, so it's it's not an easy issue. It's interesting stuff, yeah. I think of the summation of anything we've we've discussed here in the in the three days. It's, it's not unlike the other things we bring up, we bring to the table here. It's a complicated problem with with what is you know, what we're given as a simple solution, which is not absolutely not the case. It's nuanced. There are things that need to happen in order to make that seemingly simple solution work and needs to be set up to for success excellent place to leave it guys uh thank you for uh for joining us for this three-part series on the decriminalization slash legalization of drugs we talked about a lot go back and listen please send us any questions you have or comments if you want to add to the conversation uh justin you have anything else to say to to our audience don't cancel anyone america see you next week it's been a hell of an episode get some sleep see you guys 
This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. Yeah.